0: Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash CollinsLastStand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Collins Last Stand Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by Madison Avenue's madman himself, Hi. Dagan Moriarty. Dagan, how are you today? Hi, guys. Oh, we're back. We're back for wave four yeah. <sighs> of the show. Unbelievable. Well, if these go up in order, and I think they will, I think this is the 27th episode of Knockback. Wow. And the show, you know, first of all, Dagan, before we get into it, this show, as I, I let you know, is growing. Last month, by the time I'm recording this in July, was the biggest month of knockback since we launched it, I think, in March or February. So thank you so much for that. Appreciate you guys out there supporting the show. Whether you support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Last Stand for early access, the option to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas. And, of course, if you listen on free feeds as well. We don't appreciate you as much, but well, we still appreciate you. Yes. Just a little bit. Low. Thank we, you I appreciate, you, so much I appreciate you just a little less. Well, <laughs> you got to be honest.
1: Be honest. There's a there's a tear. There's a tear, and that's it.
0: How do you feel about the success of the show so far,
1: Daniel? I'm very grateful. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening, and I'm glad you guys are enjoying the show. And it's, you know, I'm continuing to have so much fun with this show. It only gets more and more fun, I think, for me.
0: Yeah, I'm just having a
1: blast, man. How are you, how are you doing with it? How are you enjoying it?
0: I'm having a good time, too. You know, it's funny because I think the show is adapting and, and molding itself into what the audience wants more and more and I think that's why the show is getting more popular because we're doing not only a smorgasbord like a wide array of topics which I think is really cool and exciting whether it's a video game a television show but we've actually gotten into this more amorphous space with some of our topics especially in wave three and we're going to do that again in wave four with not products but more notions and ideas so you know last time we did a few of those and and you know like the video store for instance and this time we're gonna do some of them with like Saturday morning memories and guilty pleasure movies and all the all kinds of stuff like that. Those and are fun. Episode about the video store did more traffic, I think, in two weeks or a week and a half than the Sopranos episode did in, you know, two months. Yeah. So
1: it's pretty wild. It it is. And I like what you said. It's a perfect way to say it that it's there are shows that you know, that aren't based so much on a property, but on just pure nostalgia of of memory and sort of anecdotal, you know, humorous memories and i think that's fun i i like having both they both uh work
0: i agree i like having both and we're going to continue to have both so thank you so much for supporting us and showing us your love remember that Collins last stand also does other shows including fireside chats which is an eclectic interview series side quest which is a youtube series about video games and the newest entry in the stable sacred symbols which according to itunes is still the number one playstation podcast in the world so thank you guys for supporting that.
1: Kyle, I'm glad you brought that up. I yep. wanna, I really want to start by saying congratulations to you and Chris on the success so far of Sacred Symbols. Thank you. Your PlayStation podcast. You guys are about six or seven deep now, right? Yep.
0: By the time people will hear this, I think the seventh episode will have just posted.
1: Salud, dude. It's, thank it's, you. It's amazing. You guys are doing an amazing job. It's a great show, and everybody should listen to that show if you're not already. I'm sure you are. And yeah, I'm very proud of you. Thank you. It nice, is a great nice show, work. isn't it? I do. I, I agree it. with you. You're killing it. <laughs>
0: Thanks. Not going to lie. Thank you so much. I appreciate. It. I'm working hard, but it's it's everything's working out great. Cons Last Stand is a passion project for me. So without without that passion and without that drive, everything would kind of disintegrate. And that's why I really enjoy running and and circling these four shows that we're doing right now. But Knockback to me is a special treat, not only because I get to see you, Dagan, and now you've joined me in California. We recorded knockbacks first season as it were here in Santa Monica right but the next two after that so something like 20 or 22 episodes we did something like that in Philadelphia yeah that's right and now I'm back here in Santa Monica with you you just flew in today we're gonna do this episode and one more and then maybe order some Del Taco and get it delivered for an exorbitant (laughs) amount of money on Postmates (laughs) nice (laughs) <laughs> I'm surprised, Dagan. I don't know if it's because I haven't said the topic yet, but do you not have a joke for me? Do I need to say the topic first? You know what? I'm
1: going to do a thing. We, we won't have to spend too long on it. You know how I like to experiment.
0: Yeah, you are. You, whether it's with drugs and all those other things. You well, have to <laughs> <see it. laughs>
1: but in the beginning of the show, I've tried a few things. We did the run in lines. We did some jokes, but I'm going to try a new little segment at the top of the show for this round of these 10. Eight or ten shows that we're going to do. And I have two titles for it that I want you to pick which one you like the best. Okay. Okay. It's a little segment call, that I was calling Beside the Point. Okay. Or Changing the Subject. Okay. And it's just about a little... Think of it as a little appetizer. A little side topic that we could you know, start the shows off with. But it's completely non sequitur to the big topic that we're going to oh, do this. I don't mind that at so, all. And you know what? I figured, Kyle, I made a list of things... That I figure that are either humorous things, topics, or maybe something that we're interested in, but maybe I strongly suspect won't have their own knockback topic. So a little side thing that we could say, oh, what's your take on... That I could ask you,
0: what's your take on this? I like that. Don't ruin any of the topics, God God forbid. No, I don't... God I, forbid.
1: I think, I think I chose wisely, but I think I was really debating between the first two that I wanted to start with. But I think I'm going to start with asking you about... Mm. Nothing to do with today's big topic. Okay, Prince. Oh. The artist formerly known as. Minnesota's own, own Prince. Give me your take. And you don't have to spend a lot of time on this, okay. but give me your take. Because I figure, I like I like Prince. Yeah. He's not going to have, let's, I'm going to be honest, he's not going to have his own knockback topic. No, definitely not. So give me your take on Prince.
0: I like Prince. I think, you know, actually my best friend Ramon, who a lot of people who listen to knockback, specifically the exclusive episodes that we do on Patreon for Patreon supporters only, Ramon has actually been the guest, guesting in Dagon's chair for those topics. Yes, yes. We did a topic on the Mighty Ducks. We did one on TGIF shows, and we did one on Say by the Bell. So if you guys are, support us on Patreon at any level, a dollar or higher a month, you get access to those. They will never be released to the public. And it was when Ramon and I met in college that he's a he likes Prince a lot, and it, he was the one that really exposed me more to not necessarily Prince's catalog, which is extensive. A lot of us know a lot of his songs, but actually more to Prince's fine musicianship And as a younger rock fan, I never really realized that he's an incredibly well-respected musician. It's not just about how good his records were or the zeitgeist at the time around Prince, but rather that he's actually incredibly sophisticated as a musician. So that's my take on it. And I was profoundly sad when he died because I felt like his production and his ability to shepherd artists and do things of this nature was actually quite profound as well. So.
1: Well said. Yeah.
0: How about you? What do you think of Prince?
1: I love his music. I think his music it's a it's a perfect thing for knockback actually because I'm very you know being a, a child of the '80s, very nostalgic for his music, particularly of course the Purple Rain album, and the movie as well. What's your favorite song? What's your favorite? If you had to pick one track, this might be tough.
0: I don't know. I don't. I don't even want to say. Let me look at my Spotify playlist here. Where do, is my? I don't know. My fucking phone in here. I guess I'm gonna have to go with one.
1: Yeah, just think off the top of your head. He's it's a tough one
0: because there's a lot of good ones. What was that song? Computer, Computer Blue, or something like that? I don't know. I think there's. I think that's the song I'm thinking of. I'm not sure. Fine. I was I gonna I go. Let's
1: go crazy from from mine.
0: Okay, that's fine. Love that song. I, that's a that's a great song. I mean, there's a lot of obvious choices you can go with. Yeah, know, 1999 and all those kinds of songs. Oh, but, I love that song. But I think that there's a song called Computer Blue, which I think that sounds right. I think might be on Purple Rain. Because
1: that even comes up in the Dave Chappelle stuff.
0: He says oh, it and in the like, basketball. Shoot he's like, shoots blue. And he, like, shoots a, <laughs> shoots a basket. <laughs> I think that's the one. Purify yourselves in the water. of Lake Minnetonka. <laughs> Lake Minnetonka. <laughs> So good. So what do you want to call this? Do
1: you want to call it? What do you like better? Beside the, the point?
0: Yes, beside the point. Or We're
1: changing the subject.
0: I like changing the subject more That's what we're because gonna call it. I like the apostrophe after the N in changing, which is very 80s. Oh. So not changing the subject, but changing the subject. Well
1: played. That's what it's going to be.
0: And that resonates a lot with me right now because I'm watching 90210 in order. Yes, and, you uh, Yes,
1: you are.
0: It's an arduous march. I'll tell you what. <laughs> it is really it fucking is.
1: Not always so pleasurable as you would think it would be.
0: I took a video for Erin when she was in Massachusetts visiting her family. It was an early episode where David gets into a fight with Brenda or something like that and it's 1 minute, 60 seconds. Okay. And it's so funny, dude, how like how dramatic and up and down <laughs> and crazy and emotional and, and how much it changes just in that 60 seconds. It's really funny. David
1: so may be popular. the weak link of that show. Would you agree?
0: You know, I, I hadn't seen I don't know that I'd ever really seen the first season. I watched a lot of 90210 with Dana and I watched a lot of mm. Our Sister and I watched a lot of 90210 in high school because it was on in order on FX after school. For like several episodes a day and I would just sit there and watch it. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know why. So I've seen a lot of All. Some of it I've seen it twice already. But I don't know that I'd ever seen the first season. And David is so much younger in real life and in the show than everyone else. He is. I didn't realize that Andrea, who I can't re- remember her name, was 29 years old. Yeah. In the first season. And what's the curl? I, I I can't remember the curly haired guy's name for some reason. Ian, my, Ian the Ian. Oh, step definitely Steve. Yeah, Steve. He was 26. Oh, I thought he was, like, 47 when the show And was. it's just so strange, you know? It's very weird. But there's something very nostalgic about that show to watch. And the soundtracks are amazing. Like, they're absolutely amazing soundtracks, dude. I'm telling you guys, like, go... Look at the first season, all the songs that they play in the first season—it's unbelievable. Meat puppets and all this random ass shit that they
1: like—that hmm, they
0: somehow retain the license to.
1: So nine—it's a very nineties time capsule.
0: Yeah, nineteen specifically that season, 1990, 1991. Wow, so it's, it's the turn of it. It's yeah. really the turn for a lot the of great hip hop and weird ass shit going on, dude. And that show is so over the top. Like there's like a there's a valet Parker at the school and shit. I'm like what yeah they're like one of the first scenes in the show is like i think steve driving up to the valet at oh, the school or whatever God.
1: did i ever tell this Did i ever i don't want to stay on this for too long but yeah. did i ever tell the story that the woman who played Andrea almost ran me over when i lived in la no <laughs> i i was crossing the cross section and for some reason she this here comes the silver lexus that was gonna run through the and stopped right right at my legs and i look at the passenger window it's the woman who plays Andrea. And no, I'm sorry, I don't know the actual. I don't name. remember her name either.
0: Oh, no, it's... it's Ah, um, oh, fuck, I just had it just flashed across my mind. So
1: thank you for almost killing me.
0: You want an, an, another interesting story about Andrea? Please. She's the president of SAG-AFTRA right now. Is that right? Yeah.
1: In California?
0: Yeah. Wow. Interesting, right? That is very interesting. That's what happens when you read about 90210 on Wikipedia all night.
1: Wow.
0: Can't remember anyone's name, of course. But... She doesn't
1: do anything anymore. She doesn't work. She just no, does she's that. Like,
0: yeah, she's like a, a, an advocate for actors.
1: Interesting.
0: Well, what the hell was this episode speaking about? Speaking of changing the subject. I know. Jeez Louise. <laughs> I like it. I do too. I like non sequiturs. My entire company is a non sequitur. <laughs> <laughs> Today's topic, Dagan, is one that's near and dear to my heart. And I know that it's going to be near and dear and it is near and dear to your heart too. And it's Mad Men. Very much so. Mad Men is a television show that I would argue is the strongest drama ever made and is the most consistent show including other shows that I like, like comedies, like I would consider Always Sunny in Philadelphia, one of the great shows of all time, Seinfeld, Curb, etc. It's consistent. And it's a special show to me. So I, I think we're going to structure this show, Dagan, if it's okay with you, the same way we did the Sopranos episode. And I'm going to do that with the same warning. I don't think you should listen to this episode unless you don't care to watch Mad Men or, well, or if you haven't watched it yet. Well said. Mad Men is streaming front to back for free on Netflix. So there's no excuse to not go check it out. Watch it. And I'm telling you right now that it's absolutely worth your time. To 100%. 100%. Watch. So, 100%. only listen to this if if you have no really no intention or no interest in watching it. Although I don't know why you'd listen to this if you aren't or stop and really go watch it and then come back to it in the coming months, weeks and months ahead because we'll obviously be here for you. The idea of this show, of course, is that it's evergreen based on retro topics or older topics, so there's no reason to rush around. I want you guys to get the full effect of the show without spoiling it for yourself. I'm glad you I'm glad you said that. The other thing, Dagan, is that, again, in the structure, we structured The Sopranos. Instead of st- structuring The Sopranos episode around what happened and where it came from, that's interesting. I don't really want to waste time on that. We structured it instead by talking about the characters in the show because the characters are driven, or driving, rather, the greatness of that show, as, as is the case with any show. And we're going to do the same thing, I think, today with Mad Men. But before we get into it, I was wondering if you could tell me, from your perspective, mm. what is Mad Men even about? Because this is a question that when you ask someone about it, obviously Don Draper is going to come up as the protagonist and the advertising agency he works for. But otherwise, I think it's a totally open question what it's about, what it's actually trying to tell you. And that's, I think, part of the beauty of it. So if I pitched you the question, what's Mad Men about? What do you say?
1: It's a really, really great, great question because there is a lot to say here. I think it's a TV show based largely during the entire decade of the 60s. I think it's just about... it's. I think it's, A, I think it's about the 60s. And I think that, you know, that's the time period that this is mostly contained within. And I think it does center around our main protagonist, Don Draper, and a man who is trying to sort of reckon with who he is and... What he is basically, and set you know, set inside of the advertising world, Madison Avenue, New York, in the 1960s. I think that's how I would sum it up. And the, the thing about Mad Men is that so stands out to me is it's a great, I consider Mad Men a great American work of sort of literature, although it's not a novel, it's a TV show. That's how well realized, thoughtful, and well written this show is. And you know what's interesting for me too, Kyle. This is sort of not. This takes takes a little further, but in watching Mad Men a third time around for this for this episode, it surpassed Sopranos for me as the best TV show ever made, easily, like handily. This this show is so well done, and it's it's odd because it's a joy to watch, although it's not necessarily very upbeat all the time, but it's still sort of a sublime TV show to watch just in how well-crafted it is. Now, what would you say? How would you summarize it?
0: I think Mad Men is about the contours and the textures of individual people that, when judged at face value, would probably be considered bad or mediocre people that are in the, that are doing things that are wrong, that aren't necessarily criminal, that actually almost none of them are criminal, except for the protagonist in a way. Yeah. But it's not the specific anti-hero that we got out of Tony Soprano or out of, you know, Walter White. As we talked about on The Sopranos, and I'm sure we'll talk about when we do Breaking Bad in the future, it's weird to have an audience so vehemently support and root for a character that's so bad. And few people that watched The Sopranos wanted bad things to happen to Tony Soprano. I don't think. I don't think that that's what people wanted. It was like almost, you almost rooted for him because he you're told that you're supposed to in some subtle way. And I think that Don Draper, the protagonist, played very ably by John Hamm in Mad Men, is a step back, many steps back from Tony Soprano. He's not a murderer. He's not cold-blooded. But he's selfish and self-involved and does not care who he hurts. It's, there's almost a sociopathic nature to Don Draper. Definitely. And... It's also an ensemble cast, which is why I wanted to kind of structure it based on the way we did the Sopranos episode, because it's really, again, about the context of everyone around him and how his life affects others and vice versa, and how little other people really do affect him. And it's a deep show. I think that's the other thing I would say. It's an incredibly deep show with a lot of things that you only pick up on the third or the fourth time that you even watch an episode. And Dagan made a great point when we went to lunch before that you really do If you want to focus and understand the characters, the kind of ensemble around Don Draper, you have to watch it more than once because you need to focus on them in a a deeper way. Yeah. But I think you're right, too, that it's about the decade of the 60s. And I was reading, you know, I honestly didn't do too much research for this episode because I've seen every episode at least three times, and I know it pretty encyclopedically. But also, I just don't want to fill my head with a lot of things that r- other writers feel about it. I was looking for things specifically that Matthew Weiner, who is the creator of the show. Some people call him Matthew Weiner. I think it's actually pronounced Weiner. but Yeah, it's Weiner. Things that he said. And, and actually, he doesn't talk a great deal about it. Even when the show was on and when the show concluded, he talked a little bit about the finale, which was interesting. Considering he's an acolyte of David Chase. And David Chase, of course, is the creator of the Sopranos. That's where Matthew or Weiner got his start writing, especially in the fifth and sixth seasons of that show. Right. And he said something really interesting. This isn't verbatim, but he basically says that the show is about liberalism giving way to conservatism and how the revolution of the 60s fails. They're basically telling a, a slice of that, show, of, of that story in their show about the headiness at the beginning of the 60s and the conservatism that takes over as we move into the 70s and how things radically change in an almost fading and failing idealism that comes and goes as the backdrop to the show.
1: Yeah. So I think that's what Mad Men's about. Yeah, I think that's well said. I think the 60s is really, that's so, that's, you could see that exactly what Matthew Weiner said about the 60s, how, you know, the politics played out and how everything worked out through the decade. You could see that. It's in the writing. It definitely is. It's interesting that he would say that. And I think the 60s is a character in the show. You know, the 60s is definitely a character in the show. The show centers around as stylish and as sort of glossy as the show is. And obviously everybody knows it as like such an amazing, beautifully done set piece as far as the settings, the costuming, everything about it is very, very painstakingly realized to be the 60s. As much as that's the case, the show has a very sort of realistic intonations in the fact that it's sort of almost like a great novel. Again, it, it sort of floats in between sentimentality and then being sort of feeling cold and detached and kind of floats in and out. And you never know what you're getting. It's like life is really happening to these people, you know. You fi- I find myself wanting to be very sentimental and everything wanting to work out for everybody, but sometimes that's the case in the show and sometimes it's not and you never know what's going to happen. And it's just very, very well done in that regard. It really feels like a, like you're reading a great work of fiction, you know, only you're watching it play out. And I never, I don't think I've ever experienced that with another show before, you know, I don't think, and we'll get much deeper into, you know, what draws us in in that magnetism. But I don't think, I've, I don't think another show, there's a lot of other good shows, Sopranos, Breaking Bad, but this has a very unique magnetism in that, it really does feel like you're reading a book, like a great book. So,
0: Yeah, well, very well said. And I think that a lot of that comes from the man behind it again and his kind of literary angle to writing. I mean, you saw that a lot in Late Sopranos. And I was reading, too, that he like consulted with David Chase about decisions he was going to make for the characters. And the other interesting thing is how many writers worked on the show and that he would really let a lot of interesting ideas in and out. And you know, I was reading an interview with him where he was saying like that he had to be convinced by writers that certain characters were going to do things. In other words, he was open to the idea and was flexible that even though he basically created all of these people, that he doesn't really have a monopoly on their story, which I thought was so interesting and so antithetical to what I would do if I were him, where I'd be like, we're doing exactly what I want to do. We're going to have different writers writing things, but this is the structure of the show and everything's running by me. And he was talking specifically about, and we'll get into it, about how Stan and Peggy end up together at the end of the show and we'll obviously talk in depth about both of those characters he was like I was not sold and didn't know that that was going to happen until the writers told me it was going to happen and I think that that's a remarkable thing also he was talking about planning out arcs and and the planning like how he knew the show was going to end and told John Hamm how the show was going to end in the fourth season and with all the contract disputes that were going on later on and also the abbreviated seasons that resulted from it it's interesting that they held that secret really for more than three seasons it was like five years so it's unbelievable it's very, very cool, but the show ran from 2007 to 2015. It was on AMC and really was the first major hit for AMC. We, we look at AMC as having The Walking Dead now, and, although The Walking Dead's certainly waning and it has, sure. it has other, you know, programs of, you know, like Hell on Wheels was a really great AMC show, for instance. Terrible name for it, but really, really great show. So it won 16 Emmys, or I'm sorry, it was nominated. No, I'm sorry, won 16 Emmys in its life and won five Golden Globes. I was surprised by how low that number was. Not for the Golden Globes, but for the Emmys. I was does seem low. Especially because half of the Emmys are creative Emmys. They're not even acting Emmys. So I was really, really quite shocked by that, considering the level of performance on the shows. And I think that at the end of the day, the question that we have to resolve before we get to the end of the podcast is, is Don Draper a good person? And is Don Draper worthy of redemption? And does he find redemption? And I think those are all completely open questions. Great. So let's start with the protagonist, Don Draper. Who is he and why are we so attracted to him? Because as I tell Aaron all the time, I didn't start drinking Old Fashions because of Don Draper. That's like my drink of choice. Whenever I go to a restaurant, I always order Old Fashions. They're so good. They're fantastic. But there's such a debonair swagger and coolness to Don Draper, even though he's, again, a a pretty selfish and self-absorbed person, which would be in my normal life a total put-off. In other words, we know so much about this character, and yet we can't help but be attracted to him. Absolutely. So, tell me a little
1: bit about Don Draper. He's a character that I think very ingeniously operates on a lot of level, a lot of levels, and a lot of layers. Because, first of all, Don Draper, as we know him in the show, is a powerful advertising executive. He's a creative director at a relatively big advertising agency in the heyday of advertising in the mecca of advertising, which is Madison Avenue.
0: And before you go any further, explain a little bit about, we're New Yorkers, so we're familiar with it, but explain Madison Avenue and kind of the importance of where that is in Manhattan and kind of the role that that place plays.
1: So Madison Avenue is the capital of advertising in the world. That's where all the advertising agencies, all the big New York advertising agencies exist. Not that there's not advertising in other places. Of course there is, but New York is the mecca of that and adver- Madison Avenue is where all those advertising and still are a lot of advertising agencies existed in Manhattan and that was the capital but more importantly the 60s was the heyday of this this is what this was advertising's big lead in to being the most important because when this show starts advertising t- advertising especially on TV is only about 10 years old so it's still the wild west in a way of course, you have you had print advertising in other segments, but so, so Don Draper is an extremely powerful man. You know, he's an advertising executive, he's a creative director, but the thing about him is that, you know, he's extremely handsome, he has a beautiful home, and a beautiful trophy wife, and a beautiful family, but the thing about him is, and again, please, I can't, Colin already said this, but really don't ruin this show for yourselves really if you haven't seen it it's worth watching without getting any spoilers cuz it's it's such a special roller coaster ride and so Don Draper is can we can we reveal this now Are you yeah, ready to yeah, do yeah. this so he's really a man named Dick Whitman who in the Kore- who served in the Korean War fought in the Korean War as a young guy i don't know if he was in his late teens or early 20s at that point and basically steals the identity of another soldier when everybody else is killed and he's injured and comes home from the war injured as somebody else. He steals somebody's identity and then carries that through to his life. Now, going back, he was a kid who grew up in the Midwest who was the son of a prostitute who died in childbirth and was actually raised by was actually raised in brothels and then early on and then had, you know, abusive... He grew up very poor. He grew up with an abusive alcoholic father. And so all of these things sort of churn and turn and create this situation where he steals somebody else's identity and becomes very successful as that person and lives out these lies and deceptions. And it's so funny because... I was comparing it to Sopranos and it almost seems like why is Mad Men better than Sopranos? Because the Sopranos has that gravity of almost an unfair advantage, right? Of being centered around the mafia, which is such a draw and so interesting because you have that homicidal danger and you have that sort of, you know, you have, you have that the violence and sort of that natural as human beings are sort of drawn to that situation. But Mad Men has that sort of draw from basically wanting to see how this man is going to continue to make these lies and this deception work, and is he going to get away with it? It's kind of complicated to sum up. But did I miss anything there? I don't I'm just think so. To summarize
0: it. I don't think so. There's a duplicity inherent in Don Draper that's essential to understand if you're going to understand the character of Don Draper slash dick whitman and understand his relationship not only to his own family who does not know this about him until deep into the series yeah but that he lives double triple quadruple lives with others around him the way i the way i describe this character don draper for me dagan is he's insatiable he can, it is never enough no matter what happens no matter what he has no matter what he gets it is never enough for him and there's a part of me that appreciates and respects that inherent drive and obvious work ethic and obvious competition, competitive kind of juice that he has flowing through his veins, which I have too. And I totally respect that about him, but you're immediately introduced to a man who philanders behind his wife's back incessantly. And when we're talking about, it's not like one or two things he sleeps with and is with so many women that many of these women become characters in the show for a time. And I love how there's a rotating cast of really able female actresses that play these various roles and what I love the most about it, and this is what I love the most about Don Draper's philandering and, and and the fact that he's kind of a dishonest person to his own wife, who is arguably smarter, better educated, more beautiful than any of these girls, is that they're all different. They're all different. It's all, very true. Every one of them is different, not only aesthetically, but in terms of who they are. He starts out in the beginning sleeping with a like super bohemian, you know, artist right. in the village. Then he sleeps with Jewish department store heiress, and she's a little bit older, and later on he's like a psychologist, and he's he's with a waitress, and he's it's like incredible. A teacher. A teacher, right. It's, it's an absolutely incredible thing to watch Don Draper kind of just jump from situation to situation and call back, I think, in many ways to his upbringing. And you learn about how he loses virginity in brothel, and you learn about all yeah. these kinds of things and how he looks at sex as an escape you know it's and and i think a lot of people look at it like that it's not i'm not really i guess i am judging him i wouldn't i think cheating on people is awful but the cool thing about it to your point is that they show his childhood there's an actor that plays don draper as a kid yes or dick as a kid his parents his step parents in that brothel he witnesses his own stepdad being killed he's really quite disliked by his stepmom and a lot – everything is reactionary to that. He wants to get out of that life and extract himself from that life. So when he finds himself in Korea, he's a deserter. And that's why I say he's a criminal because he's not committing crimes in the show. He's a deserter. He's a total deserter. And I think is always sensitive to the fact that he's kind of a coward for it. You know? Now, easy for me to say as someone who was never in combat, Korea is a fucking hairy-ass war. You know? And I, as you said, all of his – or many of his people around him die. Yeah, and they show some of it. Right. In flashbacks. Right. So – you know he's a remarkably dynamic and interesting character in which everything revolves around in the show, and it's funny how he has positive or adverse effects on everyone around him, and no one around him affects him at all. It's not till the very last season when he has starts having an existential crisis, and you think that he's leading himself into killing himself, which I think is what the whole season's about. Absolutely, and then he gets redemption, and it's the ultimate David Chase-inspired Matthew Weiner fuck you. Like, he literally ends up better off at the end of the show than he began somehow. Oh, it's going to be so cool. I can't wait to get there.
1: If you're familiar with the show, and when you guys watch the show, who who of those of you who haven't seen it, the question was through the seven seasons, what, you know, when you watch the intro, was this sort of foreshadowing the fact that this man is going to kill himself? And you'll know what I mean when you watch the intro, you know, was this, and that, that was always the thing with me. You know, which I always thought was such a brilliant thing. Did this, did this writer have the audacity and the balls to actually foreshadow how this is going to end from the first minute that we ever saw the show? How brilliant is that? And it still works on a brilliant level. To me, it operates still in brilliance and the fact of it had us guessing and thinking that the whole time. But we'll get there. But, you know, in order to flesh out, it's sort of hard. The show has so many characters and so much texture, as you said earlier, that it is hard to sort of put it in order from A to Z. And we'll flesh out the show and the other characters, and especially Don as we discuss it more and more. We'll build it up. But he's such an interesting character in that he's, he really is presented literally as a masochist because he likes to get beat up a little bit while he's having sex. And sex is a medicine for him. But isn't it interesting that this man sort of has a second lease on life? He does this, these hideous things. He steals somebody's identity. He gets the, not only that, we'll get more into this. He gets the blessing of the man's family, right?
0: Yep. Which is a totally amazing turn in the show. Unbelievable, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Another unbelievable, brilliant part of the show. When the
0: show just moves to California suddenly.
1: Right. But you know what I mean? He gets the second lease on life. He gets he achieves great success. All of his dreams come true. He gets everything. And still can't, almost in a masochistic, masochistic way, refuses to hold it together you know, through his, basically it is really through his womanizing because, you know, it's like Scooby-Doo. It's like, I would have got away with it. You know, if he just sort of stayed on the straight and narrow, there was no reason for him not to have everything, you know, and it's very interesting that, to me, that Don Draper's a very principled creative director. He's very principled in his work And what he does and what he's talented at for a living, which is being creative, you know, and making a lot of money at that. But he has no principles. All his principles are saved being a creative director and he has no principles for anything else, which is very striking to me in the show. So where do you want to go next, Kyle? There's so many different avenues we could explore here.
0: I think since we're exploring the depth of Don Draper as a human being and not as the creative director of Sterling Cooper and later on all the different permutations of names that the the firm takes as the show goes on. Goes through a lot. I think it makes most sense to stay with his family. And so I think we need to explore Betty Draper, played Mm -hmm. by the very lovely January Jones. And... Betty Draper is college-educated, which is not rare at yeah. the time, but unusual at the yeah. time. Oh, yeah. She's incredibly beautiful, and she comes from a good, sturdy upbringing, and, and she seems like a, a good woman to to Don. You realize that Don is not self-aware that the audience is watching these things about him, obviously, if you're looking at him as an entity that is self-aware, but you learn as the seasons go on that Don was... Kind of a grinder and kind of a hard worker, but kind of a, a schmoozer and kind of a, a little bit of a schmuck. And would was working at a fur company doing their own ads in house. And that he up. didn't always have everything. You learn. You always assume that he kind of was always worked his way up the ranks and became this very powerful and very rich man. But actually, he has very humble origins and meets his wife, who's a model, while he's working this very humble job. So not only is his wife beautiful and educated and worldly and all those kinds of things. She speaks like fluent Italian and and she was with this man before he had anything. You don't know that about her until like the third or fourth season. You don't know that at all. So you always assume that like she kind of turns the other cheek and, and looks away from the things he's doing as a lot of the wives in the show do because that's just what men do or boys are going to be boys or whatever. But you realize actually that she has no investment in this life that Don Draper's built up for himself. She was actually invested in him before that. And it's it's a very important thing. The other thing is that they take this character that you have a little bit of sympathy for and then run her through the ringer later on. Don Draper and Betty get a divorce about halfway through the series. She's with another man. And they kind of demonize that character for the rest of the show. And I always found that, at least from my perspective, and I always found that super interesting. She comes off as a super bitch. She leaves Don. You feel bad almost for Don. Even though Don, she didn't do anything wrong. She just wants out of this abusive, this emotionally abusive relationship. And then they make her obese, you know, and make her pretty that fat period. And then they give her fucking lung cancer.
1: Yeah. And kill her. Very tragic. You know? Very tragic.
0: And I was reading some stuff online where it it was interesting where people were saying, like, this happens to her when she finally gets cognizant of what's important in her life, you know? She starts educating herself, like, going back to school. And being trying to be a better mom to her daughter, uh, specifically Sally, who's an amazing character who we'll get into, I think, a really important character.
1: very, much very so. underrated
0: character, I think so too, especially as the, especially in the late seasons. And so that's kind of my take on her is that she's like a, a doting housewife, but at the same time, has emotional depth that supplants and, I think helps buoy, in a way Don Draper's lack of empathy and lack of emotional depth. And it's a super odd yin and yang combination. So what what do you take away from her?
1: Betty is one of my favorite characters in the show. And I think saying that she has depth is a very accurate description of her. You know, she's from the very wealthy Philadelphia suburb of Elkins Park, where she grew up. She prep schools. I think she went to Bryn Mawr Prep. These are all very real places. She has a very white-collar upbringing. And she's sort of a princess, But there's so much more to her than that, and you know she's very sort of mindful, and you know very preening. She's very into her looks. I think she, you know, you know she half knows that's her meal ticket. She knows she's the trophy wife, but there's a lot more depth to her as well. Because what's very striking, what you said, Kyle, is like a lot of the women in the show, and I think it probably was indicative of this this caliber or this echelon of people, but even her, some of Betty's best friends and other women in the show, they are, you know, their husbands are womanizing. They are cheating and they sort of accept it and go on. No one's getting divorced. No one's getting separated. They just kind of turn the other cheek. They just take, you know, whatever it is that's keeping that marriage afloat, the money, you know, the laziness, whatever it is. But When Betty finds out that Don isn't faithful, it's the beginning of the end. She can never come to terms with it. She ends it, essentially. She tries. There is a small arc in there where she tries to sort of ignore her feelings for Henry, who goes on to be her second husband, and sort of kind of keep the marriage going with Don, but it just doesn't work out. And that I think that's the first time one of the first times in the show you realize that she is a person of substance it's not just all exterior and she does sort of have a cold and businesslike demeanor on one hand but as I feel like as those tragic things occur and as negative things happen in her life that brings out her humanity a little bit so she's a very interesting character and she's of the women that are supposed to be her age in the show, I think she really does stand out because of those things. And she, you know, it is, it's a, she's one of the most tragic characters in the show because of how her arc plays out. And I, and I think too, we'll get more into this too. I think her love for Don, Don calls her birdie. I think their love for each other sort of morphs and changes and, They grow more distant at points, but I don't think that love for each other ever really goes away. And I think that's another sort of thing that, as the show plays out, you know, that sort of becomes apparent.
0: There's a great scene in, I think, season six, but I can't be sure, where their son Bobby, who we're not going to talk too deeply about because he's really an irrelevant character. Yeah, he is. They have two other kids other than Sally. They have Bobby and they have Gene. Jean. Gene's like a toddler, basically. They actually conceive him when they're on the outs. Exactly. So she, he's basically born into the divorce. And they're not really relevant characters. Sally's extremely relevant. We'll talk about her next. But there's a great scene when Betty and Don, I think, go to Bobby's camp. And they sleep with each other. Yes. And they're drinking and they're sitting on the porch and smoking and reminiscing. And it's a really remarkable and quite touching scene and quite touching episode because you do get these vibes that neither of them ever moved on and that Don knew that he could leverage his good looks. You know, men, you know, Aaron and I were just talking about this. Men and women are on these different looks trajectories. A lot of men become amazing looking compared to the way they looked when they were 20 or 30 when they're 50.
1: Right. They get distinguished. Right. Exactly.
0: Right. And Sterling or and Roger Sterling is an amazing example of that. We'll talk about him because he's a really great character. Great point. That's a, that kind of represents that. He's even older than Don. But he realizes I think that he can leverage this against his wife, his ex-wife while her looks unfortunately for her are going to start declining and she's kind of wrapped up in this marriage that I don't... I'm not super convinced that she's all that happy in. and there's a great scene with her too before she divorces Don where she goes to a bar and, and fucks a guy in, like a, in the bathroom. And it's a really uncomfortable scene. She's doing it out of revenge and out of spite and it's super bizarre and out of character for her but shows that she has some like fallibility in her too. And I, I always really... Enjoyed those two scenes in the juxtaposition that shows range in her temperament between accepting, loving, nostalgic, whatever the case might be, and vindictive and understandably angry and tit for tat and almost Hammurabi-like in terms of eye for an eye. You know, she becomes a less relevant character as the show goes on. I think to the overall arc because it's, the show really is about Don, and since she's out of the inner orbit, she becomes she gets not it's like a planet getting knocked out of orbit. She's kind of just on the periphery now, and it becomes more about others including a lot of transient characters but it actually focuses much more on don like don the spotlight grows on don the more the show goes on so i really enjoyed her character and i enjoyed the interactions that she has with her family because it gives it a little bit more depth too. her brother who is played by eric laden who is the actor that played cole in the infamous games is oh i didn't know that yeah he's really he's also in the killing which is another amc show he plays her brother, and he, her dad, who has like Alzheimer's, is in there, and it's a really interesting. They 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 give you just enough to keep you engaged with her. They show her gossiping with the neighborhood women, the woman, yeah. the widowed woman, or or the divorced woman moves in across the street. There's yeah. all sorts of things that show all a whole range of emotions for her, from pettiness to enlightenment. Absolutely,
1: and her friend Francine, who seems kind of like an irrelevant character, but especially in the, throughout the first three seasons, that's the perfect... Here's a woman who's in the exact same situation as Betty. Wealthy husband, same neighborhood, family, husband is a philanderer, but Francine sort of maintains the status quo and sort of becomes... Basically becomes a, you know, a punching bag for her husband. Not literally, but she takes everything that's doled out. Whereas Betty undergoes the exact same thing and handles it a different way. So it's it's kind of cool to see that those two play off each other, you know, and um, it shows you the difference of Betty compared to the other women.
0: Absolutely. I think at this point it would make the most sense, as I said earlier, to segue to Sally. Sally Draper is in the entire show played by the same actress, a little girl who I think just turned 18. I was just reading about her. I'm like, was she older than she was supposed to be? But she was actually, she was born in 1999. So, When the show began, she was literally eight years old, you know, and when the show ended, she was 16. So she was actually playing her range, which I thought was really interesting. That is cool. And Sally goes from a lisping, annoying character (laughs) that has no relevance in the show. And I'm not entirely convinced that they intended on her being relevant. Yeah, I don't know. They probably saw range in that actress. I have it written down here cuz I never knew it. Her name is kiernan Shipka. I think that they probably saw a little something special in her and maybe wanted to uh, kind of elaborate on her character. Maybe it was always in the cards because 99% of the focus on the children, Sally. The other the boys are like not even relevant at all. No. And I become really enamored with Sal, what Sally's character represents, which is Don's conscience. There is an amazing, perhaps one of the most amazing scenes in the entire show is in, I think, season six or season five when she walks in on her husband or on her dad having sex with someone. Yeah, it's heavy. It's really, really incredible. It's brutal. Because not only is she seeing her dad in the act, she's seeing her dad cheating on his new wife, Megan, who we'll talk about, and totally laying bare the very character of the man who she. I don't want to say looked up to, but kind of tolerated and wanted to kind of please. Yes. And realize that she was of the same gender of the people that he abused the most in his life. I still remember seeing that scene for the first time and being like, and like saying out loud, like, oh my God. It almost reminds me of like the Red Wedding in Game Game of Thrones or something where it's like, it's a thing where you have to, you're exacerbated. You can't believe it. She walks into the apartment and there they are. And the reaction to the woman, like she starts crying. The woman that you know that he's cheating on her with, who's the wife of a of a doctor, a brain surgeon.
1: Yeah, they live in the building. Right, they're friends.
0: Right, actually, exactly. It's a totally sadistic. Ooh, it's, it's it's the most sadistic relationship he's in by far, definitely in the show, Agreed. and and one of the longest running ones too. And then Sally changes. Like Sally's like a problem child, and a lot of it is played through the lens of her friendship that also lasts throughout all the years with Gl- this guy named Glenn, who's an amazing character in his own right. This really misunderstood little boy. Who has an almost, I don't want to say perverted or inappropriate, but a, an untoward relationship with Betty. Like, starting at a really young age, Betty goes and babysits this little boy across the street. And he asks for a lock of her hair. And he get, and she cuts it out and gives it to him. And he basically becomes kind of low-key obsessed with her.
1: Yeah. No, you're right.
0: To the where, it, you know, like, it kind of plays out in its own way, you know? And... The anger that the parents, and specifically Betty, want to direct at Sally, they direct at Glenn. But they they kind of remain friends and remain tethered and connected to each other. But after that scene in the apartment where Sally walks in on Don, she starts taking it out on him. And their relationship starts to become more strained in its own way. Where they're at dinner with some of Sally's friends and she accuses Don of hitting on her friends. It's a really remarkable sort of scene where... She's like, why are you fl- basically like, why are you flirting with my friends who are like fifteen? And he's not. I don't think he even really is. Right. But it's a very she's a very very deep and interesting character. What do you think about Sally Draper? She
1: is. It's so funny her arc because it, it it does seem like she wasn't gonna be such a big player, and I think she does become more and more of a key character as the show plays out over the seasons. Yeah, I think I I never thought of her being represented as Don's conscience, but I could totally see that. I think that's a really great pull. And she is sort of, you're sort of, I think she's part of the reason, they do have the th- Don and Betty do have the three kids, but you're sort of, I mean, at least for me, you know, and I could be a pretty sentimental guy, but for me, especially maybe co- being a, you know, a child who, you know, my parents got divorced, our, our parents got divorced when I was older, but I think i found myself pulling for Don and Betty through Sally a lot especially cuz she was you know she was older than the other kids and you want to see it work out for her and yeah i think that automatically i think of that scene where she walks in on don having sex with the doctor's wife i think there's that there's definitely that and then there's the situation of her relationship with don's second wife who is the young model and actress megan She is from, she's French Canadian, and she starts out as a secretary in the advertising agency, and Don forms a relationship with her. Eventually, gets married, and her, she's very young. I think she's supposed to be what twenty four years old in the show or something. Yeah, and she, so she's very young, and she, she's a very sweet lady, and she tries to have a relationship with Sally, as sort of the stepmom. But you could see it's even awkward for her because she's so young. But also, on the other hand, she's she's young enough to maybe have a bond with Sally because they're a little closer in age and there's some sort of uh, familiarity between, you know, they're both girls and Sally's getting older now. And Sally's sort of repelled by it, you know, and you almost feel for her. Like many children in a step-parent situation, right? And then there's that classic scene where Don brings... Sally to the place where he grew up which is a run, really run down you know almost like a tenement house and you know here's Sally sort of grew up in a affluent suburb she's sort of a you know the rich white kid and Don brings her to where he this was there and that that actually that whole arc played out after she caught Don sleeping with the woman right mm. and Sort of, that was the beginning, oddly enough, for such an uncomfortable moment and such a terrible thing. You picture yourself in that position of being in Sally's position to see your parent cheating or having sex with somebody that they shouldn't be. It's, it's god-awful. But that's actually the beginning of some kind of understanding between Sally and her dad. And then he takes her to that the place where he grew up and said, so, you know, this is where I grew up, you know, and, so, and which is the ending of a specific episode, which is so poignant. And that for me, that's, uh, she was always a, she was really a great vehicle, not for only for herself as a character, but for Don's development, especially during the second half of the show. And I think it also show, I think Sally also always kind of presented Don in that mixed light because, you know, here's this guy who's just a hideous person in a lot of ways. You know, he's not good to be people he's, he's sort of prideful you know he's he's cheating he's hurting people but I think they always showed him as a compassionate father if you think back to the arcs of especially early in the first three seasons where Betty kind of wants him to be a more assertive and strict parent but and now this is before Betty knew who you know, who her husband really was and who he can you know, he was very mysterious with her. He, didn't, he never told her a lot about his upbringing or anything like that. And he was always sort of hesitant to be more strict because of, you know, being aware of how he grew up and being afraid of his father. I think they always kind of painted Don in a positive light through his fathering skills. You know, he he's one night, you know, Sally's scared and she comes down and he's making like I think he's making, like, eggs and hash or something like that, and he makes her some. Or, you know, he goes in and kisses the kids at night when he comes home, even if he had a rough day. or You know what I mean? That type of thing. So I think she was always a vehicle, too, to present him in a more positive light. I think he was always a better father than he was a husband. And I think Sally sort of drew that character. Sally sort of drew that out of him, too. You know, presented him that way, which was interesting.
0: Very well put. And you brought up—I so mean, I think the next logical place to go since you brought her up is Megan— and then we can get into the whole cast of characters on the other side. And I think the more relevant to the show side of Don's life, which is his business side. And we'll get into the real nitty gritty of these fucking cast of characters. But <laughs> but Megan Draper, uh, Megan Calvay, who's played by Jessica Paré, is, like you said, a young, early 20s secretary in a roving line of secretaries that work at the advertising agency, whatever the name is at the time. And they just kind of fall in love with each other I guess I'm not entirely convinced Don ever loved Megan I think that it was like he saw in her exactly what he needed and a lot of it happens when they go to California together and she comes as basically the nanny for the kids while he's over there doing shit and he proposes to her and and actually he's in like a relationship with another woman who like you're kind of in the time rooting for him to end up with who is is doctors incredibly educated woman who's basically like a behavioral scientist and like kind of breaks her heart basically which is a horrible scene too. She's a great character. Yeah. Yeah, she is. And so Megan, to me, is one of the people that will stand up to Don. It seems like the women in his life, will, including Joan and other women that we'll talk about, are, are women that will absolutely tell him what men around him that fear him won't tell him or, or envy him or, or idolize him, won't say to him. And she's a, she's a, a, an aspiring actress and an ambitious woman. and. representative very similar to peggy who will also talk about don's protege as a sort of woman of like a new age post-war 1960s woman a woman that doesn't necessarily need to stay at home or work these very low-paying secretarial or typing jobs or whatever but that has more more at play and i think that that's an important thing because the show starts in march of 1960 at which point actually eisenhower is still president at this point and JFK is elected and nomin- you know, nominated to the to, and elected president of the United States and then runs all the way through his assassination in 63. LBJ becomes president. And you have 1968, the election with Nixon and Nixon becomes president. So there's a whole smorgasbord, as I said earlier, as the revolution of the 60s fails. But you see a lot of upward mobility for the women in the show, which I think is really cool and representative of a new age. And I think Megan kind of encapsulates that. But she ends up fighting back, too. And she does it way fiercer and way more formidably, I think than than Betty ever did which I think makes her a super interesting character. Yeah. So what do you think of what do you think of uh of Megan? I
1: always liked the character. I think she's inherently a very sweet character. I think she really did care about Don. It's interesting that you you put it as far as I'm falling in love. I think it was a little bit of a slow burn because it seemed like she was just a secretary for a while and their sort of romance I remember being surprised at their romance. It seemed a little unexpected at first. You know, I don't want to say suddenly because the show is always thoughtful. I don't think there's ever been a point in time where the show wasn't thoughtful about something. But at at a certain point, that romance is kindled. And I think rather than talk about who Megan is, I think what Don was really intending with Megan was to, it always seemed to me that he was trying to sort of make up for all his past foibles with his second marriage. I do think he went into it with the right intentions. Now, obviously, the philandering doesn't stop. The cheating doesn't stop. Don doesn't really change because of his second wife. But she represents an interesting... Megan represents an interesting foil for Betty because I think it strikes Betty right in her pride. You know, here you have a young model slash actress. Everything Betty was maybe you know, 10 years prior. I think Betty is a little younger than Don.
0: Yeah, she's like in her mid-30s, I think. Right, so
1: So you figure she's 10 years older than Megan, right? So I think that was an interesting sort of development for Betty because now she's dealing with this young, you know, she was once the young trophy wife. Now she has to see that in another woman. Even though the divorce was really her doing, I think that hurts her a lot. And I think that is sort of the beginning. Or, you know, I think that's sort of around the... The fat, you know, the that sort of arc where Betty is sort of seen as like she's sort of medicating herself with food a little bit. And I know that Matthew Weiner and the writers had the January Jones got pregnant in real life. So they had to c- sort of create something. I think that was going into season three. Was that going into season three? Yeah, maybe even later.
0: Maybe, four. maybe later. Yeah.
1: Megan also sort of uh, ushers in another character who is her Megan's mother who becomes a prominent character later on. She's sort of a really feisty, older French-Canadian woman. You could tell she was very beautiful in her... She's still quite beautiful, but you could tell she was quite beautiful in her day. And you see her sort of influence on Meghan. I think Meghan is inherently a lot sweeter than her mother would like her to be. I think her mother is trying to coach her into being a little more assertive, get more out of her marriage to this, you know, powerful, wealthy, you know, rich husband. In Don, you know, I always think of the scene where Megan sings the song to Don for it's his
0: birthday party. Yeah, right? Vizu, Vizu, or whatever the hell. Which is called.
1: really, a, which is really a mem- quite a memorable,
0: it's super awkward
1: scene. Very, it's very, yeah, it's it's. Uh, it was quite
0: controversial, actually. I remember that when it when it aired. For the really, first time is people, that right? At least on social media, people were like, "What the hell was it's that?" It's pretty cringy. Yeah, you know. I think it's supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely. It's totally intended that yeah. way. You know,
1: because you know all his colleague, all Don's colleagues are there. You know. But again, it's also cringy because she doesn't... I almost feel... I don't want to read too much into it, but I almost feel like Megan isn't really trying to be seductive. I think she's just... Re- I think there's a sweetness, you know, that doesn't quite blend in with who she is and who she's with. Who You know, who she's with and who she's surrounded by. And in a way, that makes her a little bit of a tragic character. She's really a charming character. She's a little bit of a... She's a little bit of color and positivity, and especially in a part of the series that seems a little darker.
0: Well, we've gone about an hour or so and have not even touched, I think, the major portion of the show, which is Don's professional life and the people that he deals with there, who obviously play prominent roles in the show. Oh,
1: they're so, so good.
0: And I want to start with Peggy Olson. Played by Elizabeth Moss, and Elizabeth Moss is awesome. And I, I like Elizabeth Moss' connection to a few of my like favorite or some of my favorite shows. She's the daughter of the of the president in the West Wing, which is I love the West Wing. Right. And she's also in The Handmaid's Tale, plays June in The Handmaid's Tale, which is an exceptional show. But it's always hard for me not to see her as Peggy. And Peggy Olsen is Don's secretary who rises to copywriter, who then rises to copy chief and becomes like a pretty powerful executive woman, which is rare at the time, and is the protege character to Don, the underappreciated protege and kind of sacrifices their relationship uh, to better her career after she feels like she's being mistreated by him. And the scene when she quits about halfway through the show to go to a competitor is an amazing scene because Don like doesn't even take it seriously at all and then until he does, which is really awesome. But I like Peggy because Peggy is similar to Megan, but from a different angle, is representative of the upward mobility of women at this time in the post-war period. And so there's something very powerful about that to watch in real time. But it goes further than that. It shows through Peggy, we and really only through Peggy, do we witness the difficulties of those prototypical and early pioneering women in business and the shit that they had to deal with and how she demands and earns the respect of the people around her over time through hard work and determination and through, frankly, being disrespected over and over and over and over again by a lot of different people but still lets her talent shine. And the cool thing about it is, you know, to Don's credit, Don is egalitarian in a way, because which you, I guess would expect he's very bohemian in that way, where he is totally willing to do what's best for the business. And what's best for the business is to hire a woman and put it in that position because they don't have a woman's perspective on almost anything. And they're trying to sell all of these women's products. I become disappointed with Peggy's character. I think she becomes frustrating to me later on. She becomes a little too bitchy and a little too self-absorbed and, when she gets throw, thrown out of Don's orbit for a while, really permanently actually for a lot of the show, she becomes secondary and tertiary to the story, which frustrates me because she's so important and so interesting and I wish that they never let her out of...
1: Yeah, there is a period where it seems like she's less prominent. Right. For and I, sure.
0: And I don't like that she was kind of ejected by the writers and by kind of the flow of the arc to, to the secondary status when she was really quite important, quite empowering, quite interesting character, one of the most interesting characters in the entire show, so you know i still like her i still like her story though and i think that it's a really fascinating glimpse into the life and times of a similar you know hopefully many similar women that were that were climbing the ladder at that time when no one before them had ever gone and so it was there was a level of danger and intrigue about that and and we saw it all through her because the other women in the show were either the wives of various characters secretaries or friends and the only other powerful, really the only other truly powerful woman in the show is Joan, who we'll talk about. So talk to me a little bit about Peggy Olsen.
1: The secretary, you know, eventually turned protege to Don, as you said. You know, very interesting arc. And I think that she presented early on a character to root for. Now, if you go back, you know, here's the Catholic girl from Brooklyn. Very traditional upbringing. Not at all Manhattanite, you know decidedly unsophisticated, and I think you made a great point, Kyle. She's seen as sort of being, I don't want to mis- I'll say mistreated and abused in a way by various men throughout her trajectory on the series. Now, it starts back with, I, I had forgotten about this until I rewatched it a third time, the Colin Hanks character of The Priest who's a friend of, the, of her mom. You know, Peggy, when we meet Peggy, she's living with her mom and her sister in Brooklyn. She's already working at the agency, but she is a secretary. So very low down the totem pole. And Colin Hanks plays a priest. I'm sorry I'm forgetting his name in the show, but he does a great job. I, I really like Colin Hanks. I think he has a lot of, charm of the charm of his father. Um, and he plays a priest who sort of, who, who ends up being very judgmental of Peggy and you sort of go through the throes of not really knowing where this guy's coming from and ends up being quite judgmental vocally of Peggy because he finds out that she had a baby from another character that we'll talk about in the show that works at the agency and gave it up and he's very hard on her for that and just pushes it way too far and then you know Peggy being mistreated by various men who we'll talk about in the agency, and guys later on like Duck Phillips, who's an executive and sort of one of Don's main rivals in the show, and later on another rival of Don's that we haven't really talked about yet. But mostly, we're rooting for her because she's dealing with Don, and Don is very hard on her. I think it would be overly sentimental to say that Don was hard on her initially because He wanted to see her rise. I think Don was hard on her because he was hard on her. And I think eventually when her talent as a writer and as a creative is extracted and Don sees that, I think his riding of Peggy, quote unquote, turns into a more constructive thing. But I think initially it's not. I think initially he's just being a dick, you know. And I think you're you're naturally rooting for Peggy through that. But again, this show... Like a like any great work of literature, it's not overly sentimental because Peggy is not presented as this perfect person. Yes, you're looking, f- you're watching her rise, you're rooting for her. You know that that's not you know being a copywriter and eventually being a copy chief in a in a fairly big advertising agency is not a big thing. So for her to achieve that is such a marked accomplishment, and you're rooting for her, but. Over the course of her path there, she's not perfect. She's messing up. And, you know, she does things that are that are strange. She takes odd turns. You know, she goes too far. You know, she sleeps with people she shouldn't sleep with. She says things that she shouldn't say. She acts catty to another office employee. Again, in a great work of literature, there's a lot of gray. She's not just a good guy. You know, and I think that's what makes her an interesting character. And I think eventually they do push her too far in the other direction of like being the empowered now she's the empowered woman and instead of taking her power and embracing it and helping somebody else out she's walking through the hall with a cigarette in her mouth and a and a racy painting that she's going to hang in her office you know what I mean but she's purposely pushed that far because again this is not an overly sentimental thing people are people people take it too far people take their power too far you know, people forget where they came from, and I think she, she's a great character. I think you said it very well, or that she's a, she's a character that's very easy to get frustrated in because you want to see her trajectory sort of clean and goody-goody, but it's not, and it's not for a reason because she's a human being and she's presented that way. And I think she's a very important character. She's definitely one of the most, the five most important characters in the show, and Elizabeth Moss is brilliant. She's just, she plays that character so perfectly.
0: I think the one observation that I made above all else with Peggy was, and again, it's a similar observation to Joan, who I I think it will make sense to talk about next, who is an amazingly dynamic character. Great character. Is she's one of only two women, like I said, that Don ever respects. And it happens to be that the two women that it's not that they never had to try to have sex with Don. Don never makes a move on either of them ever. At least you never see him do it. Maybe... It's written in. So I don't think it is like that. He never makes a move. And it's it's drawn in stark contrast to the fact that a lot of people assume that the only reason Peggy even got to her position was because she she slept with Don and it's something she has to carry with her, even though she didn't. And, and the interesting thing is she, she never really overtly denies it. No,
1: she jokes about it,
0: but she literally never did. Like she literally no. just had this unique insight, a unique female insight that they really desperately needed to sell a specific item, whatever it was. And then she just remains relevant to them because of that. She's the female voice that you need when they're selling bras and they're doing department store shit and all that kind of stuff. Like these other people have no idea what they're talking about. They don't know how to sell to a woman. And so there's a, it's really, she, Don respects and almost fears Peggy in a way because he he could have totally had her way with, you know, his way with her. And, and that's kind of, I think the missing observation with Peggy for us is that, she does get it, take it too far. I think it's probably intentional because the writing is actually really frustrating. And I, I don't imagine a show this good would have frustrating writing unless Absolutely. it was was intentional. But she has a redemption arc when she ends up with Stan, as I mentioned earlier in the show, which I really quite liked because it was important to me above all else. They draw up this parallel between Peggy and Pete Campbell, who's another important character who we'll talk about so many characters. And Pete doesn't deserve shit and gets good things. Yeah. And Peggy deserves something nice to happen, and she also gets something good. So it's like a nice comparison to draw at the end of the of the show because Stan is such a likable character. Great,
1: great character. Very likable. Very appealing, yeah.
0: But since we talked about Joan Harris so much, we should probably move on to her next. Joan is interesting. She's played by Christina Hendricks and is classic buxom bombshell. Yes,
1: bombshell is perfect.
0: And again, not trying to be crude in describing her, but just a busty beautiful pinup girl from the era.
1: Very indicative of that era.
0: It's hard to tell, like, could they have gotten the casting better with any of the characters you wouldn't know because you wouldn't know any different. Can't imagine them casting a better character. than No. For, for, for Joan.
1: Absolutely not.
0: Joan is kind of like the head secretary and actually becomes another empowered woman in the show who ends up owning a piece of the advertising agency when she jumps on a massive grenade by sleeping up with a client, which is one of the only truly untoward things like truly, truly untoward things that's actually ever happens in the show on the business side. And she is independent and is in this sort of roving love affair with one of the partners, Roger Sterling. She comes off as very bitchy and very snotty and very snobby and elitist at first, which is ironic and weird because she's really not that many rungs above the, the women that she's. She's still not looked at as a legitimate character in that company at first, even though she thinks she does. She has like a she has a big chip on her shoulder. But it's been earned because she's probably been sexually harassed and mistreated for so many years that it's like, how can you not? You have to carry yourself as almost it doesn't bother you. you have to carry yourself. She carries herself with her chest out and her shoulders high, and she always looks the part. But it's kind of a facade. There's a lot of pain and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of frustration underneath the service for her. I like that. And I always really looked forward, especially my first run through the show as I was watching them as they were coming on, I was always really looking forward to Joan's scenes because you never really quite knew what you were going to get out of her there's a lot of dynamic situations that Joan finds herself in. And she's just, she's a, almost a motherly figure in that she, she plays a different role for different characters for Don. She is the, the consoler and kind of like the, I'm going to take care of what you need to take care of. Do you need an apartment? Do you need an apartment furnished? Do you need, you know, like all of those kinds of things. And she takes care of Don, you know, but with Roger, she's there for him emotionally. And Roger is a mess and she, she needs to kind of be there to pick up the pieces. But for her own husband, she's, kind of the doting wife, even though she's super, you know, her husband ends up being a a military doctor who goes to Vietnam and she's kind of like the doting wife, but there's a layer of frustration under the surface that is immediately met with every one of them. And she's not afraid to let them know she has no fear of these men, none. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that frankly, she knows what she's working with. You know, I think that she, she understands that in that fifties and sixties environment, a sexualized inappropriate environment that she came up in that she got far farther than maybe some other women did because she was more willing to play the game and then she didn't want to play it anymore so she's a she's a super interesting and important character throughout the entire trajectory of the show and I've always I always really enjoyed her and I do think that Christina Hendricks did a such a wonderful job of, of representing Joan in a way that was totally believable Joan to me and there are other characters in the show that really feel this way, Joan to me feels like a relic of that time as if they just extracted her.
1: Really, very much so. You you nailed it. Yeah, absolutely. She's a character that really rings true, you know, the office manager, you know, and you could see, I think that's really well said. I think you could see that there's a lot of pain in her course of getting to where she got, you know, that she is in charge of the secretaries, but she's really just an office manager, but she's considered very important there. And oftentimes... You know, she, she really rings this way to the viewer, but she's even referred to in the show as a very Marilyn Monroe-esque type. And she is, you know. And it's interesting. I can't, you know, it can't be, it can't be overstated. She has a sexually—when she ha- when the show starts, she already has had an ongoing sexual relationship with one of the founding partners of the agency in Roger Sterling, who we haven't talked about yet, so we won't talk too much about that yet. But that's a very big part of who she is and how she's presented to us initially. And she does sort of conduct herself with a cold air, especially to the other women in the office. But I I think it is in in almost a strict motherly way. I think you kind of nailed that. But isn't it interesting that she can't really... Joan can't really escape those sort of sexist attitudes of men. And a few different things that stand out to me, there's an interim, there's two main art directors in the show, Salvatore and later on Stan, but there's actually, in between those two art directors, there's an interim guy named Joey, who's not a very big character in the show. He's sort of kind of like a a stand-in art director at the agency. He's there, there, I think, part-time. And he accuses Joan, and I think is subsequently fired because of this, but of like walking around like she's asking to be raped, you know? And then later on, Joan is raped by her husband in the agency. You know what I mean? So I think it's hard for someone who there's, it's a woman who sort of maybe got to where she got through using those feminine wiles. Right. But there's so much more to her than that. But It takes her a while to get out from under that. Eventually she does, but it takes her a while to get out from under it. And I think that's what makes her very, partially what makes her an interesting character. And I think her friendship with Don, you know, and you already said this, and this is very striking in the show, Peggy and Joan are the only two female characters in the show that really main characters that Don doesn't have a sexual relationship with or that you don't suspect that he's going to. There's a friendship between Joan and Don and that arc, that one arc that you already talked about a little bit where they're trying to woo a major automotive client. The agency is trying to woo Jaguar and there's a question of, well, can Joan sleep with one of the Jaguar execs? Will that secure them, the client? And Don goes to her in friendship and says, you know, I don't, you know, you shouldn't do this. It's not worth it, but it's too late. She already did it. It's a very touching episode because Don goes to her and sort of spills his heart and says, it's not worth it. We don't need them. It's not worth doing this. But it's too late. sure, he did it.
0: Right. And she extracts 5% of the company out of them for doing it. And what's ironic, that's a great point that adds a lot of layers to the various characters that are involved in the leadership position. Pete Campbell, who we'll talk about in a minute. Roger, who we'll talk about in a minute. Bertram Cooper, who is arguably my favorite character cooper is an amazing character he's great they're, cooper actually has i think the most history they refer to the most things that happened and how they got here through him we'll get to him because i think he's a i can't wait to hear what you have to say about
1: fascinating that. fascinating character
0: but it's a role reversal you would expect all the other guys to be like you don't do this and they all wanted to do it and and don's the only one that's like this is insane he's
1: literally the only one
0: and you know they're basically using her and they and and i mean she's getting something out of it i mean when they sell the agency, I think the second time she makes something like, I want to say something like $500,000 off of it, yes. which at the time is something like 7 or $8 million. So it's not like she didn't get anything out of it. And I don't know that she's really that full of regret ultimately, but it is a very uncomfortable, uncomfortable situation to see her in. And since we kind of root for and care for Joan and she becomes less bitchy and more personable and you see how abused she is by her husband and how when you went to Vietnam for a tour, the, the tour was typically 13 months at the time and then you can come home and he voluntarily goes back for a second term. And that's when you realize that like the men in her life just are intent, just complete. And she has a kid, by the way, are just completely intent on just fucking with her no matter what. And then she realizes after this thing with jaguar and as she becomes more independent she doesn't need them she has more money than that doctor will ever have because exactly. he's also a hack
1: he is he so turns out to be yes he
0: joins the military i mean not disrespect no disrespect to military doctors i don't know how accurate it is but he goes to the military because he can't become a surgeon at a real hospital because he's not talented enough and it's a whole thing that they play out so i like joan and i like i like that joan more and peggy too but joan is a blurred line gray character that that goes from personal to business in those two worlds that mad men revolves around which is the madison avenue kind of era and end of it and then the more suburban end of it she kind of plays in both worlds which is cool to me since we brought him up so many times i think pete campbell's probably the next guy that we should talk about very important pete campbell's played by vincent kartheiser and he's pete campbell is is peaks and valleys for oh, me oh man like, I don't very know how, so. I, don't, I don't know how else to put it Pete Campbell is like an account man and, and ends up being an account executive and a pretty important character in terms of their their viability as a company. Basically he's one of the schmoozers he's one of the guys that like deal is the front-facing person that deals with the clients the intermediary between the art and the client. So he's out you know he's taking telephone calls and going to meetings and going to dinners and whatever the case might be. but in the beginning of the show he's a, he's very junior and he's very green and he's very inexperienced and he, He's one of the, another one of these womanizers. He's the one that gets Peggy pregnant, yes, and, and and like one of their you know and their only sexual rendezvous, and is the beneficiary of a lot of people doing good things for him, and doesn't really seem to understand that. At first, he gets some of his biggest and most secure clients through his wife's dad, who is the father, by the way, from Clarissa explains it all. But more importantly, is. <laughs> is like a clear sale and doing all these kinds of things and and gives him a lot of security and also they give them the down payment on their apartment in New York City and you know his wife is is, is Trudy played by Allison Brie <laughs> my favorite Pete is a is an ever-present character in the show never goes away but becomes from my perspective more likable the more the time time goes on and is the unexpected character at the end of the show who redeems himself he does it doesn't happen for almost anyone. Don, Peggy, and Pete, I guess in an ironic way, are the ones that walk away better off than they were at the beginning. And then everyone else is kind of in stasis or worse off than, than they were in the beginning. That's a great so, point. So what do you make of Pete? Because I, I feel like Pete kind of in, at times blends into the other male characters that are at Sterling Cooper and the other agencies that we end up seeing, but at yeah. the same time is is actually really the foremost character of that group, not only in terms of power and the structure at their company, but in terms of the way the writers kind of put him, you know, present him to us.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's well said, Kyle. He's sort of like, you know, he's in that whole field of the guys we'll touch on in the agency. You know, he starts out as a junior account man and he does sort of blend in with all the other younger, you know, sort of Ivy League turned professional, sexist, chauvinist males in the office, right? And make no mistake about it. Starts out as a shit. I mean, he's a shitty person. He knocks up Peggy. He's mean to his wife. He's a philanderer. He is the one that goes to the heads of the agency about Don's real identity and tries to get Don fired. He basically harangues and sort of coerces a young au pair or nanny in his building into a sexual tryst through doing her, what you initially think is doing her a favor. And I think the, not to spend too much time on it, but this particular nanny, a German nanny in her build, in his building messes up her address of the, you know, of the head of the household, the woman that she works for is dress. And Pete gets it replaced this expensive dress. I think it's like a Hermes dress or something. And you think, You know, you think I don't know if this is season two or season three, and you think, "Wow, Pete's turning a corner." But the whole thing is to try to get this nanny in bed. The whole thing turns out to be to try to get this nanny in bed, and you know, she she rejects him. But it was so well said. I think it was a Matthew Weiner interview that he talks about Pete and what Pete always wants, or it just never. Every time you think it's working out for Pete, it's not really working out. What he really does want is to be, and his perfect place is to be a big fish in a small pond. And eventually at the end of the show, not to spoil anything, but at the end of the show, he gets that. He can't be, he's not the guy who's going to be the head of accounts in New York. It's not It's not going to be him. He's not that type. He doesn't have it. But he can move out to the Midwest and be the big shot. Again, the big fish in the small pond. So he's a very frustrating character because... He he could be very charming, and I think when you think he's turning a corner, you know eventually he does get divorced from Trudy. They get back together again. So he does have a very I think you said it very, very well. He has that sort of roller coaster sort of trajectory over the course of the show, but a very important character and a very important character that you could see some of the other characters play off of, because he's a he's a strong character. He's very cutthroat. You know he's going to stop at nothing to get what he wants, or at least he's going to try. And he presents that sort of peril for the other characters. So I think that's what I always made of of Pete. I always, I always enjoy, I mean, this show works for me on two layers. I mean, it's just a great, it's such a wonderful drama and character piece. But it's also set inside of a creative workplace, which I can relate to because I work in a place like that. And I was always very drawn into, for me, the most joyful and the most sublime parts of the show are those scenes that, Focus on the inner workings of the agency, and Pete was always a big part of that. He was always the centerpiece of that, really, or at least one of the centerpieces. So I always enjoyed his um his turn in the show.
0: Imagine marrying Alice and Bree twice.
1: <laughs> I ha- the other thing with Alice and Bree. Now, for those of you who don't know, those few of you who don't know, Colin and I are very big Alice and Bree fans, and you've had exchanges. Of- yeah she tweeted social, at me once which was funny which yeah. is so cool
0: she watched a video i did and, and tweeted at me. which once. is so neat
1: you know she's so adorable and uh she's just such a she Allison Breeze seems so cool that's she's yeah. very she's she's very beautiful but she's also seems just like a cool person so she seems like the complete package but yeah that's so frustrating it's like what are you doing like you have this ama- amazing woman what is wrong with you, you it's know? The same
0: thing with don with with betty it's like it's really it's like, true it really is frustrating it's like what are you what are you doing you know and what do you want J- January Jones and Allison Bree <laughs> you' kidding and you know we, it, we should also
1: say it's also indicated that Pete is from an old money New York family yeah Upper East Side family that eventually loses their standing I think back in the stock market crash right or something yeah but sort of the grandmother sort of maintains that social status but without the money so I think there's some shame. And, you know, he marries, as you already said, he marries into a – Pete marries into a rich family. So right. there might be some of that going on too, some of that frustration or trying to right that wrong or live up to something, you know. So could be another thing.
0: There are only a few more characters that I want to touch on and then we can – if there are any holes that you want to fill in terms sure, of the characters sure. before we get to our questions from our audience and kind of wrap things up. I think the next character that we should talk about is Roger Sterling. Roger is the son of the co-founder of Sterling Cooper, which is the original advertising agency in the show. And Roger is a, I don't know if it's the right terminology, but he's like comedic relief in, in, in a oh, lot of definitely. ways, but also a very serious and somber and sad character in a way. He's basically a slave to this one, to Lucky Strike, the cigarette company, who's the one major piece of their bankroll. Without them, they'd be fucked, and actually, they lose them eventually, and it becomes a huge problem for them. And otherwise, is really not considered an important or essential cog to the wheel, and it and it gets to him. And it, and I think that part of it is that it hurts him. But Roger Stilling is an eminently likable person, even though he has a lot of the same traits that Don does. He's a womanizer. He's an alcoholic. He's a, a lot of these very you know mistreats people and is all about money and 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 all that kind of stuff. But he. He tempers it by being, like I said, likable by being generous, by being kind to, to people when when the time comes, and by injecting humor and laughter into situations. Not only on behalf of the audience, sometimes only the audience isn't really in on it, but also in 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 the world in which he lives. I like Roger Sterling's character. I Me like too. what they did in John Slattery is is just a really 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 great actor who who does that character I think a lot of justice he's wonderful the crazy thing about him to me is that he's he he fought in World War II and that really comes out actually in a really racist exchange he has with Honda I think when they yep. come to the office so he's a little bit older than Don and he's the one that discovered Don and basically Don basically harassed him and like, like Sterling hated him Sterling hated Don Draper for a long time even after he hired him but Basically, Sterling goes into Don's old fur coat company, like the store he worked at, to buy a fur coat for his wife. And Don kind of sneaks in some of his art into the box, and which is considered disrespectful, I guess. And But there's always this kind of push and pull between them and this kind of unholy alliance between them. And you, I almost always wanted and would have always preferred for them. It, it, it reminds me a lot of Walter and Jesse in, in Breaking Bad in the sense that like I want them to just get along. Like, this show would be much better if they just got... Or easier to watch if they just got along. Yeah. That's what ruined Breaking Bad for me. Thankfully, it didn't ruin Mad Men for me. Like, I hated how mean Walter was to Jesse. I hated it. It made no sense to me. Like, it ruined it it for me. I totally hear that. But with this, it doesn't ruin it for me. It it adds, again, a little bit more depth to the show. So, what do you think of Roger Sterling?
1: Isn't it so funny that he really is very similar to Don in the way he acts and the way he conducts himself? But... We really inherently like him because of his charm, you know, and because of his, you know, his personality, which is different than Don's. It's much less dour and much less serious. You know, he's the he's the king of quips on the show, the one liners. He always has a funny remark. He always has an off color remark. He's extremely charming, and also John Slattery was one of the I think one of the main directors of the show as well. He's or he directed quite a few episodes. So a multi-talented guy. Every time he, John Slattery was on, every time Roger is on screen, there's such an appeal there. And his relationship, yeah, his relationship with Don is sort of has ups and downs. And there's a little bit of a inherent power struggle there. But I think ultimately he does love Don. And he does some pretty heinous things too. He tries to hit on Betty when he's having dinner in Don's house. You know, Don goes out to the garage to get like more liquor and he's hitting on Don's wife in his own home, you know, stuff like that. But he, you know, he eventually married, he eventually remarries one of the office secretaries who's around the same age as his daughter. And he's, he's got a bad heart. He's had, he's had a couple of heart attacks over the course of the show as well, right? So you're always kind of... Um, I think I was always, especially after those initial heart attacks and his health situation early on, I was always a little worried about Roger also. And you know what's also very f- striking about Roger? Although he's oftentimes, as you said, the comic relief in the show, and oftentimes he has laugh-out-loud lines, very well-written lines, very, very funny. But one of the most touching scenes in the show for me was after he had his first heart attack on the show, in which he's cheating on his wife, basically. and that exchange in the hospital room when his wife comes in and he's crying. And I think he's he's remorseful and he's also worried and he feel, you know that it, it's very, very sad. And um it shows you John Slattery's range as an actor because we didn't we didn't get a lot from him of that in the show. He's sort of presented as a one dimensional, you know, not one dimensional, but he his personality is such that, you know, everything's a joke, you know, even when the most dire thing is going on, you know, he'll have some some funny comment to make, you know, so he was always refreshing for me.
0: A great scene with him is with his second wife when they're right before they get divorced, when they trip acid. (laughs) Forgot about that. And it's like a really, really amazing scene, like of clarity for him. Which is cool, you know, which happens. I mean, you know, people that I I listen to and like a lot. uh, Sam Harris is one of them that totally believe in those psychedelic experiences is opening your mind and stuff. And and again, because we're dealing with the 60s, this is the time and place for this to make most sense. Makes sense. And yeah, Roger Sterling is really, really interesting and important character who you root for and you like, even though, again, he has the same complexion of some of the people that you don't root for, you don't like in the show.
1: Should we talk about how it ends with him really quick? Because sure. it ends in an unexpected way for Roger. Yeah, go ahead. So he ends up marrying Megan's mother, if you remember us talking about her, the French, beautiful French Canadian woman, and moving to Paris, right? And it ends with them sitting in a cafe in Paris, correct? Yep. And she's like, you know, that's going to, you know, they're looking at an old couple having coffee, and she says, that's going to be us, you know, when we old. and he's like, yeah, in two years or something like that, you know, that's like the last you see of him. You know, and so it ends on an upbeat, you know, albeit unexpected.
0: (laughs) That was a bit unexpected. right?
1: You know, although he does take up a romance with Megan's mom at some point. It's not just a sudden. Yeah,
0: they're they're hitting on each other for a long time. Yeah. Kind of having a rendezvous or an affair.
1: An interesting ending for Roger.
0: All right. Let's talk about Bert Cooper. Mm. So Bertram Cooper is played by Robert Morris and... I don't know if it's because I love history and I love Ayn Rand and all these kinds of things, but Cooper's character always just really spoke to me. He's a very eclectic, rich man and is has a has a fascination with high art, has a fascination with Japanese culture. Like you take his, your shoes off when you go into his office. It's like expected and known that you like don't walk into his office with the shoes on. <laughs> and he's older, much older than everyone else. And what I like about him is that he... Is the only touchstone and only connection that we ever see in the show to the origins of Sterling Cooper. As I said, Sterling, Roger Sterling's dad is the Sterling and Sterling Cooper, not Roger, but Bertram Cooper is the Cooper and Sterling Cooper. It's him. And also his sister is one of the early, and you only meet her once. He's yeah. one of the people who funds the company and is like silent. What I like about him is that. And they make it very clear, and they they don't beat it over your head, but they bring it up a few times as the show goes on. Is that, and Roger actually says something to him, which is actually very interesting. That he was forged in the depression, that the company survives the depression, and that it's very serious that that happened to him. Like it's incredibly, they found the company I think in twenty three or twenty four, the depression hits you know in twenty nine. And then they, they ride it out through the 30s. Then they go to war with the Nazis and the Japanese. And then the company still stands. It's a major point of honor and pride for him that they were able to survive. And he's a super Ayn Rand libertarian adherent. <laughs> That's right. So he is very conservative, supports Nixon in the show and Goldwater and all those, you know, kind of predictable cast of characters in the 60s. And I find myself quite enamored with him. And I love the scene when he dies. It's it's, it's a very weird dance routine scene. It's a very strange. Well,
1: he now, it's Robert Moss, right? Yeah. He's an old Broadway sing, song and dance man, right?
0: I don't know anything about him. Yeah,
1: that's no. what that was all about. So go on.
0: There's this basically strange, surreal, dreamlike thing where when he dies, when he's dancing through the office, basically. And he's an old man. Like He's always old throughout the entire show. You're kind of waiting for him to die the entire time. You're almost waiting for him to kind of fall by the wayside. Like, I'm glad that they kept him relevant because he's actually not that relevant. Like, no. there's even, there's even like, two seasons but I don't think he even has an office or something like that. He's Which is like, interesting, right? Because he's the high man on the totem pole. Right. He's, like, the money man. He's, that's him. He's
1: the founder of the poor
0: thing. I am so enamored with his connection to the depression. Roger says to him in that scene that I mentioned just a moment ago, he says, we, like, we understand, like, we were not in the depression. Like, we, under, we understand that that's, like, almost a knock against us, but we weren't old enough. Like, that's what he says, basically, you know, like we weren't old enough to be in the depression. So like, stop talking to us. Like we don't understand hardship or we don't understand the things that you went through. Like we understand you survived and the company survived and you made more money because of it and all that kind of shit. When everyone was losing everything, you know? Right. I love, I just love that
1: character. He's a great character, very charming. And as you said, extremely eccentric. He's got the bow tie. Yeah, so supposedly, I don't want to talk out of turn, Colin. I don't know much more about this than you do, but Matthew Weiner has said that there's a few characters on the show that are Broadway stars. Brian Batts, who plays Salvatore Romano, the first art director, who we probably won't get that into, and Robert Moss, was supposedly an old Broadway song and dance man. So that be- that the best things in life are free sequence, when which is supposed to be at a... Halluc- it's indicated that Don's hallucinating later in the show when you don't know exactly what's going on with Don. He seems to be losing his shit and it's presented. Here comes, here comes Bert Cooper and he does this whole dance routine in the hallway and then it ends and everything just go back to normal and Don just like sits down like, like he's going to faint, like he's losing his mind and that's such a memorable scene. But Bertram Cooper it's so interesting because he he's extremely he's extremely practical, and I always think of him in terms of. In fact, I wrote down a couple of of quotes of his that. Well, he's such an interesting character in that you know he's extremely eccentric. He's got all this Japanese decor in his office. You can't wear his, your shoes in there. He's of a generation where you wouldn't really think he was. It probably wasn't too common to be obsessed with you know, East Asian culture at that point in time.
0: Especially because we had just fought them. And especially because...
1: And his generation. Yeah,
0: and Roger... And Roger's, of Connection course. to that. Right, you know, and Roger... Fighting and, in the Pacific Theater. Yeah. And
1: Roger being like a son to him. Also very striking that he's a widower. We never meet his wife because I think the show starts way after his wife has passed, right? But it's intimated that his wife is the one who introduced Roger to his ex-wife. And also he has no kids. And he talks about that. And not aside from his extreme eccentric nature is his unbelievable practicality in situations. When Pete comes to Bert and is looking to out Don and say, this man who is so so important in our office is not who he's saying he is. It's such a tense scene. You remember it. And Pete's, you know, sort of falling all over himself and trying to get it out. And Don's just standing there and smoking a cigarette. And there's so much tension. And Bert just says, who cares? You know, who cares? You know, it's just because what he was thinking was that. And he says it. He says, it's better this way. What's the point of destroying everything by getting rid of this man who says he's not, who cares? It's better, forget it, you know? And there's another scene where he, where um, Roger, actually Pete goes over Don's head. It's a big story, but there's a pitch meeting and Pete goes over Don's head to the client and sort of presents a creative idea without consulting Don first. Don gets very pissed off about it. And Roger's like, well, fire him. And Don wants to fire Pete over it. And Roger goes to Bert and explains the situation. And Roger's like, you know, you can't do that. He's the creative director. There's rules. And Bert says "There are other rules. There are other rules. And what he was saying was that they couldn't, fire, he was, they couldn't fire Pete because of the family background that he came from and the amount of sway that his family had. So again, just extremely practical businessman. And it's funny because he's almost he's almost presented in a very naive light. You know, it almost seems like he's a little goofy, but he's actually quite a cutthroat businessman. And I think Matthew Weiner has said as much that I think Matthew Weiner has actually said in so many words that Bert's not a nice guy, but He's sort of painted in this naive light that kind of presents him in it. so it makes it a very interesting character. I always thought there was a sort of joyfulness with him. There was just a lightness about him, even if the things he was doing was heavy and his practicality came out of a cutthroat business sense and you know sort of coming out of that era of depression era, you know, sort of fight.
0: Right. You it's know. A, apparently, I mean, in reading just a little bit about it, apparently it was a ride or die sort of identity for businessmen at the time who survived it. Who I like, didn't lose all their shit. Everything. Either you kept it, some people profited off the depression. You maintained, you lost a little bit, or you got it back. And I think it's the latter actually that Cooper ends up ends up happening with Cooper. And so there's a real through line between the realities of business at that time and and the way they, 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 they display him. Because, again, with Don being a, a, a Korean War vet and, you know, and by the way, there's a little bit of there's an interesting thing with Don. I was looking I was looking at my notes. Don was born in 26, which means in Korea he was at least 24, 25, depending on when he was there. Oh,
1: that's interesting. The Korean so he War was begins in 50, 50.
0: So if he was born in 26 and he was 24 when the war began. Wow,
1: that's so he would be pretty old.
0: But what's interesting is that he was of age during World War II. Like he would have been 20 years old or 18 years old rather during Normandy. They so count. there's a weird thing where he didn't he missed that boat somehow. I don't know quite how that worked out. That is interesting. Because it insinuates that Rogers way older than him, but there's only 5 years separating those wars. It's not Great like there Paul. it's not that there was a, a lot of distance between them. Not at all. But Cooper was always way older than them, so he was not involved in these things. He really wasn't in the domestic market the entire yeah. time making his money. And I just, I like that character. Like, I real, you're right. He's, you said it very well. He's pragmatic and practical. And, and again, super eclectic. The piece of art he has, that red piece of art he has, that like painting, is a yeah. real painting. I don't know. I don't know if that's a real copy of it, but that's a real painting. I don't, I, I wish I wrote it down. I like, forget to write, I forgot to write it down too.
1: Because the play, when they, when they leave to start the new age, he has it under his arm. It's, figures pretty prominently in the story right
0: there's a lot of symbolism in the show and we're almost at two hours so it's like it's
1: so much I almost feel like about. we should
0: we could do another episode about this but are there any characters that you want to touch on I, I assume that maybe we should talk about Salvatore Be, because great he's character. super interesting
1: he's very interesting they foreshadow that on my third watching I realized how much they foreshadow what's going to happen with him episodes in advance they really really do and i did and it's such a it makes you appreciate the new all the nuances in mad men because everything is so thoughtful but basically salvador Salvatore is a long-standing fixture i think he's been there for seven years at the time everything goes down for him but he's an art director Sal sal romano's an art director and you know sort of one of don's right hand men because their art director worked hand in hand obviously works hand in hand with the creative director especially
0: in this pre-photograph sure there were photographs obviously but one of the major themes with them is the ad ad artist changing from drawings and kind of conceptual art to photography and moving picture great
1: point great
0: and he he actually rolls with the punches and becomes a director a a commercial director and
1: extremely talented you know sort of flamboyant you know always very well dressed you know The hair is always well coiffed and everything like that. But it turns out that Sal's gay and Don catches him in the act. I think they're traveling at the time for a client. Yeah, they're
0: in Charlotte, I think, or something like that. Right. Or Baltimore or something like that. Somewhere
1: odd. Somewhere that was like, you know, sort of an odd thing. And there's a fire in the hotel and Don's crawling down, you know, calming down the fire escape and bangs on the window. And Sal's in there with like having a tryst with one of the bellboys or something. And Don sort of keeps it to himself for a few episodes but what ends up happening is tragically lucky strike who's you know 70 percent of their business at certain points in the show one of the the son i think the son of the head of lucky strike sort of puts the moves on sal during a commercial shoot at night you know they're in the editing room or something and sal turns him down and the guy basically turns it around and says, this guy made the moves on me, you have to fire him or you're gonna lose us as a client. And they fire him. They fire him over it. And it's really, it's really sad. And you see, I don't know if you remember Kyle, that you see the la and, and I should say Sal's married to a lovely woman named Kitty. Who I think is sort of shown that she's sort of getting the drift that he's getting. There's a great
0: scene with her when she realizes it. Do you want you talk talk about that scene? It's very important. So when Sal is kind of transitioning before he's fired to becoming more a commercial director, they're trying to replicate. I think for Pepsi or something, by the Bye Bye Birdie scene, the famous one shot scene of the girl dancing yeah. and going in, and, and you know you guys might know it, but it's, it's for Patio. Yeah, oh Patio, oh, right? Which, which I was, don't know
1: if it's a fictional brand or not.
0: I don't think it is. It was supposed to be like some diet, like the early Diet Pepsi or something okay. like that, because they don't really do fictional brands on the show. So I think that I think that it was... That's true. They don't. So he's directing this... They want like a shot-for-shot shot reproduction of this of this famous... What the hell is that actress's name? I can't even remember the redhead.
1: Oh, from Bye Bye Birdie? Yeah, but they're remember.
0: trying to replicate it, and they, they successfully replicate it. And the, ironically, afterwards, they don't even want it. They're like, it's just too good or something like that. It's like too on the nose or whatever, and I was like, okay. But he's, he's in the bedroom at his apartment in Manhattan with his wife and is explaining... Like, and acting out in a very flamboyant and gay manner, frankly, the, the he's like, he, she's dancing and doing this and looking at the camera like this. And she, and his wife starts crying. After,
1: because it's after she comes on to him. Right. She walks out of the bathroom in a negligee and he says, I'm working and sort of turns her away. And then this whole thing happens
0: It's an ama- it's a really, really poignant scene. And it's funny because it was only the third time when I recently watched it again that I realized how great that scene was. Where I was like, wow, like they never say another word. I don't think you ever see her again like that they you never they you don't ever have to she doesn't have to say a word like she yeah she has this, she gets it she gets it and, and i think and, the last yeah. you
1: see is sal right he's in he's calling from the payphone in the park right and you see you know there's uh, it's obviously like you know the gay guys i don't know they're not in drag they're like in the leather outfits with the hat and the vet. you you could see it's intimated that he's in a gay section of the park and he's sort of trolling for you know for d a, for a, <laughs> <laughs> and he calls her and says you know I'm going to be home late at the office that's the last time you ever see him
0: Sal is one of the characters that's written out that really bummed me out I liked Sal I like that they were bold enough in the, because we see so much um, we see so much misogyny in the show which I think is a relevant factor in the way the show moves and in the relevant factor in the workplace in the 60s obviously in America but there is a deeper and even harsher undertone against homosexuality they throw around really harsh and, and words around him, not knowing, of course, that he's gay. I'm not sure that they use the necessarily the term fag or something, but they might. Something like that. They say things that are... Oh, they do. Yeah, that are yeah, derogatory. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. And so they just show the experience of a closeted gay man in the 60s and exactly how it would go for him. But it's interesting because when Don sees him, what's ironic, first of all, is Don... And I think this is something Don realizes as this plays out but when they're in Baltimore or Charlotte whatever they are in the hotel and he's coming down he's with his he's with the woman he's sleeping with like just blatantly <laughs> yeah you know like just this girl's like in her nightgown like coming down the stairs and he sees obviously the bellboy getting dressed and he makes eye contact with Sal but when they're on the plane going back to New York the next day Sal's fucking nervous and sweating and stuff like that and and Don says like oh, I got to talk to you about something and then and it was just something about the art it was it was a way for Don was absolutely overtly telling him like, "Don't worry about it." It's funny because as much as you want to hate the some certain aspects about Don's philandering and all that kind of stuff, that he's like kind of down, you know, too. Which yeah, is most, absolutely. No one. There are very few people that would have been safe to tell that to, back in the day. Well said. You know, and, and it's sad because we're only talking about fifty years ago. It's not like it was that long ago, and and so the gay experience, the homosexual experience was really only seen through Sal and it was too bad that it ended like that. I was, I was not satisfied with that, even though I know that that's the point. Yeah, no, (laughs) absolutely. You know, absolutely. Yeah.
1: It came down, it really came down to them kowtowing to the client, you know, because remember that they don't play a huge part in the show, but there's a, there's sort of a partner team, copywriter and yeah. the artist, and the artist, right, and they right. work together in the studio. And he came something. out as gay. Right, that's true. Yeah, like right, right in front of everybody. In front of everybody, and everybody's like, "Oh, he's gay." And then just you know. And it was also interesting how long they took to replace him in the show later on with the character of Stan. You know, you had that that ma- minor character of Joey in between, but they went without the art director for a while you know which is interesting
0: before we jump into like we got quite a few questions comments oh, cool. uh, I can't wait and to inquiries hear. from the audience that I want to I want to go into but before we do that are there any other characters that we want to talk about because there are others there's a ton of others
1: there's so many
0: cosgrove and crane and a lot of characters but i don't know that there's necessarily too much depth to those characters i don't know that that's necessarily fair but no, I mean... Not to the line that we've talked about all the characters to this point. No,
1: we hit we hit a lot. You know, shout-outs to Carla. I really like that character. She's not explored very... She's, she's the, the nanny. The nanny. The Draper's nanny. Uh, One F- of the only black characters in the show. Yeah, literally.
0: And know. again, that's... I know that, you know, in a in day of forced diversity and, and things to kind of hit quotas, a lot of people look at things like that. I certainly look sure. at, I, at things like that sometimes where I'm like, it's diversity for diversity's sake and not diversity to tell the story. It's ironic because Mad Men the lack of diversity is telling the story. It's accurate. Oh, absolutely. Because there's also a huge thing where, th- I think it's when it's Sterling Cooper Draper Price, which yeah. is the second iteration of the company, where they put in an ad into the paper, basically. One of their rival ad companies is like acting in a bigoted manner. And like, there's black people protesting on the street for some something. I think it has to do with the Civil Rights Act. Yeah, And they're like throwing water balloons at them and stuff like that. And it's like reported in the papers and people get in trouble. And so they put a thing in being like, we are an equal opportunity or something like that. Like we... We don't judge people. And so they find a lot of black professionals and young black people in their, in their lobby the next day applying for a job. And they end up hiring one of them, which ends up becoming Don's secretary. So yeah, great character. Great but, character. And I think her name's Dawn. Dawn, that's right. And there's a great scene with Dawn and Peggy in De- Peggy's apartment when, and I really love this scene. I think it actually has to do with maybe the race riots. Something's going on where Dawn can't go home that's safely. Right. That's so right. she goes and stays with Peggy. And Peggy leaves her purse on the table as Dawn is sleeping on the couch and goes to grab it, but realizes that Dawn's looking at it as, a, as if she's saying like I need to take my money into my bedroom with me." Right, and leaves it there. And there's just a powerful unspoken thing that shows that not everyone in this situation is racist. I love or that, or has something or I something love to that. say about that.
1: That's so cool.
0: But yeah, there's there's int- Cosgrove is just a is basically a facsimile of Pete becomes less powerful, is more powerful at some point, becomes less powerful, but is a kind of another eclectic author character.
1: Yeah, he's a writer on the side. He's an account man like Pete. Right. They're sort of always buying neck and neck, but very decidedly much more pleasant and much less cutthroat. than. And
0: that's why he doesn't really survive in in that environment. There's, you mentioned Duck Phillips, who's kind of an account man and also a headhunter that kind of plays prominently in in the show. There's Ted. Ted Chow. Chow. uh, Chow, Chow, Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: he's a creative director and a rival to Don. Right. So he's
0: interesting. They end up kind of there's an interesting scene with Don and Ted at the bar in Detroit when can't they're pitching. Stand Ted. Yeah, Ted's annoying, but can't stand him. And he doesn't really play prominently until later on. Later in the show.
1: on, because he becomes romantically involved with Peggy as well.
0: Right. right. There's uh, Harry Crane, who's actually interesting.
1: Interesting character.
0: Harry Crane is played by Rich Summer. and and actually a lot of you might know who that is. He's he did the voice of the main character in Firewatch, the video game Firewatch. Oh, did he really? Yeah. And so, a lot of you guys might actually know him from that. And he's oh, also wow. in Glow with Allison Bree, which is an amazing show on Netflix. I'm oh, totally he's in watching. Glow? Yeah.
1: I haven't started it yet. Great show.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of characters, but I think we touched on all of them. But I think we should probably jump into the questions here okay. before we go much longer.
1: All right. Absolutely. Oh, and Lane, you got to mention Lane. Oh,
0: Lane Price, of course, right. You want to talk a little bit about Lane before we? Uh, I mean,
1: he's it comes in later when, you know, the agency's bought by a British firm, which is what? Powell? Oh, God. Just, oh, God. I remember that one of the partners is named Sinjin Powell, which is like the coolest name ever. Yeah, yeah. He's the guy from The Nanny, right?
0: Yes. Yes, he is. He's great, the though. He does a great yeah, yeah. great job. Sinjin is a great, yeah.
1: Sinjin Powell? That's like the best name ever. <laughs> but yeah, Lane becomes a partner later on and has a very tragic turn with you know, his own su- pressures and his own
0: suicide. But Yeah, he kills himself and they find his body in the office. It's quite dark.
1: It After trying to kill himself once before, right? Right.
0: Oof. Don giveth and Don taketh away in the show, for sure. Very well said. And it was one of the ones where Don taketh away. He definitely taketh away. (laughs) (laughs) Where basically they are working on bonuses for themselves, for the partners at the end of the year. And Lane is for some reason quite overextended. He owes like, I don't know, 25,000 pounds to someone or something like that. So he writes himself a check and forges Don's signature in order to get the money. Just advancing himself the money, but Don catches it and fires him. And so he kills himself. Just five, yeah. The questions, by the way, that are given to me here are some, there's some pretty good ones here. And we had a lot of questions. I'm going to read all of them. I really do appreciate you guys submitting thoughtful commentary that we can use in these shows. And remember, you can do so by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you support us at the $2 level or higher every month, you get to submit, I let you know what the topics are before we record them. You submit questions. You can submit questions for all the topics or one of the topics or a couple of the topics. And you also get access to voting. You can submit topic ideas and then vote on other people's topic ideas. So you have a lot of agency over how knockback goes into the future. So please consider supporting us if you can. Michael Lepper says, One thing that always struck me while watching Mad Men was that it was like watching a slow-moving train wreck. Don has everything to lose to start the show, a nice suburban house with two children and a beautiful wife, all while working on Madison Avenue, the American dream. He is one of the best written characters in television history and brought to life perfectly by John Hamm. Very well said. Well said. Phil Krohn says, Mad Men's run was mainly while I was in grad school getting my MBA. And I always felt this show was really about the revolution of human resources as the workforce moved from just men and military men more specifically to a much different world. Fascinating show. I agree. I think there's, it's like I said at the beginning of the show, David, it is about the failure of revolution and the the 60s, the 50s represent a status quo of the American dream born out of early anti-communism, the defeat of the nazis and kind of american exceptionalism being shown on the world stage for the first time in a technological and an industrial way. Very well right? said. Yes, and absolutely. The 60s represents the attempted implosion of that. Now whether or not that's the right decision or the wrong decision it failed. You know, and so I think you're absolutely right, Phil. Dorian Brown says it always shocks me how amazing of a job an actor John Hamm is in the show and I find it weird he's not a mega star in Hollywood. He's starting to appear in more stuff and was fantastic in Baby Driver. What's your take on this? Was the role of Don Draper just perfect for him? What do you think of that?
1: I think it's very indicative of just madmen in general. I think it's a very tough act to follow. Not only can you say how does John Hamm follow that? How does Matthew Weiner follow that? How does anybody follow something this brilliant? I mean, literally, it's a it's a it's a problem, you know? I think John Hamm there's a couple of things with John Hamm, John Hamm. First of all, he's he's beloved by his peers. Because he's supposedly a very genuine and very funny man as well. And he is good in Baby Driver. Have you seen that? I haven't. He plays a criminal. It's a very different turn for him. It's a, a little bit of a strange part for him, but it's weird. But I also think, and I don't want to talk out of turn or, or say anything too negative about John Hamm because he seems like a lovely man. But I know he he's had a history and he's been vocal about it and honest about it of having a drinking problem as well, if I'm not mistaken. So maybe that you know, plays into it a little bit as well. You know, somebody struggles with that sort of thing, you know, so, you know, that that could speak to it. But, I mean, he's obviously brilliant. All you have to do is watch Mad Men and Seas. But you know what he's also brilliant in? The Town. Have you seen that? No, what is that? It's a, Ben Affleck directed it. It feels a lot like Heat, the movie Heat, but it's about a small group of criminals in Boston that are taking down a huge score. And Ben Affleck plays one of the main criminals and John Hamm actually plays the FBI agent going after him. And that's a great movie, Kyle, you would love it. You would actually legitimately love that movie, but he's very good in that as well. He's a, he's brilliant, John Hamm. I if, think and I think he's very likable.
0: If I may give him a shout out of my own cuz the only thing other thing I so, truly associate with him is with one of the great episodes of Black Mirror which is the White Christmas episode that he's the main character in. Oh, he's in that? Yeah. He, I have to watch that tonight. We should. We should watch it. I tried to show you my favorite episode from the last season, which is the one mean, which is Metalhead, and you fell asleep during it, so maybe it's not as good as I thought. <laughs> but but White Christmas, he plays a character in White Christmas. I won't spoil it, but it is a very sadistic. Oh, I have to watch And that. very dark character. That, that sounds plays. wonderful. Certainly top three episodes, I would say, of that show. Cool. Oh. John Cordero has a very interesting question. He says, what are your guys' thoughts on the infamous lawnmower scene? Oh. The lawnmower scene is the greatest <sighs> left turn and unnecessary thing that ever happened in Mad Men. And I'm not crazy about it. I, I don't really quite understand what the point of it was. So for people that don't know, basically, one of the secretaries, they're having like a party. It's like a New Year's party or a Christmas party of some sort. They're very successful. This is when the British agency kind of comes in and, and kind of combines with them. And the British overlords are there to kind of, inve- you know, including Sinjin, are there to <laughs> to kind of investigate things. And kind of their young buck, I, I can't remember his name, they have like a guy who's like in his late 20s, early 30s, who's kind of like their, I don't want to say their Don or their Pete, because he doesn't really have that official position, but he's kind of like the dude. And they really trust him and they really like him. He's kind of like the, almost like a, an elite bagman or something like that. Yeah, their rising star. And he gets his foot run over or his leg run over and maimed and destroyed by this lawnmower because they have a John Deere lawnmower in the office because they have John Deere as an account and they're fucking around with the equipment. And it's a really bizarre scene and I've read about it and and it's a very controversial scene. I'm not crazy about it. I don't think it fits the show at all.
1: It's strange. It's one of those literary devices that you just don't know where the Shows going and as soon as you feel like the show is being sentimental it does something like that to me I don't want to judge it too harshly because I'm pretty sensitive but it seems to me a little mean-spirited because the character wasn't presented I don't think the character was pre- the character is presented as a threat to Don just because he's obviously a rising star in their sphere and that presents a threat to Don but he in no way is disrespectful or a dick or anything like that so it struck me as a little mean-spirited but you know that could just be my take on it my overly sensitive take on it it's certainly memorable I mean the blood squirts everywhere Joan's got blood all over her dress
0: yeah there's a scene where the guys in Harry Cosgrove a couple others are standing there and they get like sprayed
1: with blood yeah yeah. like a samurai movie
0: yeah and I love I love seeing I love thinking about like the guy on the other side of the camera who's basically like I know. Is
1: that amazing? Yeah, like, and then they all go on to make jokes about it, like just when he got his foot in the door, like you
0: know, like a rot, Like it's it strikes me it, as a little mean spirited. It reminds me of the Zaboo Zaboo whatever song that Megan does, where I'm like, this. I wish that this doesn't didn't, didn't exist in the show. It's it's one of those few scenes where I'm like, I don't understand the point of this.
1: Maybe it was a thing where it's like the the British firm came in. It was sort not a hostile takeover, but kind of. And maybe that was like a, a little dose of justice in return or
0: something. I don't know.
1: I can't think of what else that would be.
0: Carter Quinn asks, this is a good question. Why do people cheer for Draper and root against Campbell? Mm. What do you think about that? Is it a matter of just Draper being the protagonist? We're just closer to Draper.
1: We see more of Don. I think we get a little more of Don. And we get a little more texture with Don because we see him, at, for instance, as a father. We see him as a boss and we see some of the positive things that he does, but also it could be a little unfair in the fact of Don is handsome and uh, Vincent Carthizer is also a handsome guy. So it could be just the fact of Don's charm, you know,
0: that's true. That's a great point. And we're
1: unfairly judging it.
0: That's a great point. Don is Don has what Pete doesn't, which people like Don. A lot yeah. of people don't like Pete.
1: The likability. Factor
0: Right. Like Don doesn't have a problem with people liking him, whether it's because he's in a position of power or not. I mean, people don't seem to like Campbell and he's also in a position of power. So that's true. Interesting question. Dominic Squadrito says, what was your favorite season of Mad Men and why? Mm. For me, as I said, at the top, I don't have one. I think they're all totally consistent. If I had to pick one, it would probably like one, maybe one, two or three, but
1: yeah, I would agree with you on that.
0: Lost is a great example. Lost first two seasons are so supreme to every, the rest of the run that I don't think anyone denies that. There's nothing like that happening with with Mad Men. Like, I don't know that a lot of people that I've talked to the show have been like, season four was really great. It's usually like, this is an incredibly consistent show.
1: That's uh, true. I've never it, heard anyone single out a season. Yeah, but a one, two, or three stand
0: out. Just because sure. it was new and interesting. Maybe the first season overall would probably be the most interesting, but... Yeah. Dan Colber says, Do you think John Draper ended up positively changing his life after the existential crisis at the end of the series? Or do you think he's inevitably fell into the same mindset and trappings a la Tony Soprano? Ah,
1: it's funny. I have this question written too.
0: I'd also love to hear your thoughts on the Lane Price suicide. We talked a little bit about that. For me, it's a story arc that's stuck with me after all these years. It is. The Lane Price situation is incredibly sad, but we did touch on that. very sad. But rather, Dan, I want to touch on uh, on your original question, which was, David Chase in The Sopranos never really confirmed what happened there. And even when he did, he kind of took it back or whatever. There's a lot of drama around that. But, you know, Matthew Weiner really did talk about what was happening in the last season? He gave interviews and and kind of elaborated on it. So did John Hamm. You guys can go read about them if you yeah. want. And it seems like, I guess we should talk a little bit about the last season and, and kind of the existential crisis and the and the and the, the show almost completely leaves New York in the last season, which is awesome. It takes place throughout the country and like on, a, on basically him driving around and going crazy. Yeah, giving away all his shit. Right, and and it seems as if. As we said, it seemed like it. Maybe it was too obvious. Maybe I was too stupid and naive to think that they were actually going to follow through. But I'm like, he's going to fucking kill himself. That's what I thought. I really thought. that. Why wouldn't the show end like that? You know, and right. I almost kind of wanted. I I feel bad saying this, but I almost kind of wanted it.
1: I was I almost like it's.
0: It. it seemed like a complete arc to me.
1: I wanted it because it's the very first thing we see in the whole show. You're going to foreshadow that in the first two seconds of the. And then you're going to actually do it. That to me, that's almost worth doing it. Uh, to me, I wouldn't have had the restraint. That Matthew Weiner had I would have definitely done it you know playing you know look how clever I am I showed that this is going to happen the first two seconds I've ever seen this you know
0: <laughs> that's why I didn't write a hit show and Matthew Weiner did though so I guess to kind of give more context the show ends with the famous coke ad from 1970 that is kind of like a very what is the tag in it I can't remember it's like give the world a coke or yeah, something, something like, like that. that yeah I'd like to buy the world of Coke. Yeah, I'd like to buy the world of Coke or something like that, yeah. Singing harmony. And it's a real ad. It's a real famous Coke ad. Yeah, I remember it. It is insinuated that Don made this ad, like that Don makes this ad and the show ends with him basically smiling. It threw me for a loop. I was so satisfied with it, but at the same time, I was like, really? Really? This is how it's this is how this you're gonna wrap this up. So it is interesting to Dan's point. Like, do you think Dagan that he changed?
1: Yeah, I like to think that it's a. it's a great question, and I was gonna end with this as well, and I think it's a really wonderful way to end, you know, to talk about the ending of the show, which you have to talk about. I think that Don changes, but inherently I think he changes as far as he learned. you know, he has a character arc, and I do want to think that. He improves himself, but at the same time, he just goes back to what he's good at, which is creating things that resonate and, you know, being a brilliant creative. So I think he half changed, but I think his attitude changed. I think that he learned from his mistakes, but I don't think he's going to change who he is. You know, I don't, I think he's an ad man, you know, for instance, giving all his material possessions away, giving his car away, giving, I think he ended up giving his, Megan, who becomes his ex, his second ex-wife of like a million dollars or a million and a half dollars or something, writes her a check, right? Gives away everything. But, and you're like, whoa, is he going to end, you know, he's, he's, uh, meditating and he's, he's doing this whole thing and it's, it seems very bohemian, but Is he going to give up all these things and the riches and the wealth and the power? No. I think that he has a character arc and he improves as a person, but he's still going to be the same man. He's still going to be wealthy. He's still going to be an advertising executive. He's still going to be a brilliant creative director. For me, that's what that was saying. You know?
0: Well, but I'm going to butcher this name and I apologize ahead of time. I think it's Piyush Athawale. Sorry if I mispronounced it. He's basically curious, is this how the advertising industry really was during that time? Was And he talks about, was the ending appropriate? I want to focus more on this question, though, about, was the advertising industry really like this? And the answer is, I don't know. My assumption is probably, at least somewhat like this. I don't know that the misogyny and the alcoholism and all this shit, I don't know that it was exclusive to advertising. I think it was probably endemic in a lot of industries, yeah. but I think that it's probably a somewhat genuine representation of the corporate workplace in the 60s in the United States. I really
1: think they try to be accurate about it. You know what scene I think of, Carl? Do you remember the scene where Don and the family are having a picnic? Yeah. And they literally shake up the picnic blanket and leave the garbage on the grass and drive away? Yep. Now, I watched it this the third time around. I watched it with Helene. She watched it quite a bit, a few episodes with Your me. Wife. My wife, Helene. And she saw that scene. And she was like, come on. This was only like the mid-60s. That's what they did. And I watched Matthew Weiner talking about that scene. He, He researched the hell out of it. He swears that's how it was. That was it. I mean, it might have been a little exaggerated. This is fiction. You have to play things up for effect. It's funny. I have a friend who I work with in animation who moved out to California a few years ago, a great guy named Dave. His father was a creative director at a big agency during this era. And I've met his dad before, but I would love to pick his brain about it. I would love to sit down and pick his brain. You know, he lives out on Long Island and I bet he could speak to a lot of this, you know, he, in fact, he, do you remember the cavity creeps for Colgate? Like we make holes in teeth. He created that whole thing. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's where he made his money, his Long Island money. You know,
1: I think Colgate was one of his uh,
0: big things. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. Isn't that cool? Yeah. It's super cool. Paul Welts says, Colin frequently mentions his visceral nostalgia for eras and time periods that he never lived, but feels a deep connection to regardless. I do. I've talked about that many times. My question for Colin, does the show, and we can both answer this, but does the show cause that same sense of longing to experience the late the 60s and 70s in New York or to a lesser extent, California? The answer is a, a resounding yes. I don't want to say I would ever want to idolize or emulate Don Draper because that's not true. But the way Don Draper looks, the way Don Draper acts, and I'm not saying his actions, but the way he acts, his mannerisms and his swagger and debonair kind of nature, I would kill to live that life for one day in the 1960s in a beautiful thousand dollar suit, drinking an old fashioned at a restaurant with, you know, whoever doing whatever, like just, and I think Aaron understands this about me, which is funny. Is that like, I, I dress down. Usually I don't even put on pants many days, but I love wearing suits. Like I love like getting real dressed up, you know, and I, I never do it. Like when you wear a suit, it's fun. and like Absolutely. You
1: look- there's a real romantic vibe to that because yes. that's just not the way it is anymore. Yes. You know.
0: So do you feel that? I mean, I do feel that. Do you feel longing to kind of, because you were born in 73. You missed this. You yeah. The show ends three years before you were born. So right. do you also long for the Madison Avenue, New York 60s kind of scene that they show you? Obviously, again, played up and, and fictionalized, but it's grounded in some sort of reality. I Absolutely. Assume.
1: There's a charm to that. You know, there's a charm to the fedora. There's a charm to the $1,000 suit that was like a $6,000 suit back then. Right. You know, the smoking, you know, even the smoking. I mean, it's just like they make smoking look like the most delicious thing ever. Like, it's like I miss, you know, I, I spent two years of my life as a smoker. And then, you know, I, I smoked through my 20s here and there when I was had a beer, I had a cigarette or whatever. But I quit years ago. But. You know, even smoking is like they they make it look so, so appealing, you know, so there's a charm to it because it's such a contrast from it is the way it is today in the in the overall aesthetic and sort of that the facade of this. You know, I think that there's a grandeur with it, dressing a certain way to go to work and, you know, sort of putting up that facade and that swagger. It's there's a charm to that. Maybe we miss it, you know.
0: Skeptic 17 brings up the John Deere thing. We already talked about that, but he does bring up something else. He does say that about that, by the way, that Roger Sterling's reaction to the aftermath made the entire episode gold, which it's That's true. That. But he says, what about when Ida Blankenship died? Oh. So many small memorable moments in Mad Men akin to The Sopranos, some of the same writing staff, I believe, which is true. Ida Blankenship is this old woman who is totally unlike all the other secretaries in the office, like on a track. You know, well, maybe she was attracted one time. She's old. She's she's an old lady. And she's like kind of negligent and kind of incompetent. And then she just dies. And it's a it's a funny. Well, how do you feel about that character? I well, think, first
1: of all, did you watching it the third time? I realized that's the mom from Karate Kid.
0: Oh, I didn't even realize that. I think. Yeah. I have to look. I didn't even realize that.
1: Three things strike me about Ida Blankenship, and they're all lines. Because she had very comedic quips. And one time, I think Bertram was doing like a crossword puzzle, and he's like, three-letter word for flightless bird. And she's like, you know, she's doing her own crossword puzzle, and she doesn't even look up. She's like, emu. And she's like, nope, because of the hell. She's like, the hell it does Which is <laughs> like I have one of her quotes written down here which she says to Peggy after Don like berates her. Where is it? Hold on, let me find this. It's it's worth it.
0: It was almost a little too much with her sometimes, but like Roger would go in and just walk into Don's office and then like five seconds later would, you would hear on like the, you're kind of, like Roger's here to see you, or <laughs> yes, something like that. So good. That's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he did
1: that after the guy was in, or after the, he was already on the phone. You know, <laughs> um, she says to Peggy, "This occupation is for sadists and masochists, and you know which one you are." <laughs> 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 and then when she dies, Bertram says they're trying to think of something like to memorialize her, and he's like, you know, she was born. In a barn in the Midwest, and she died on the 37th floor of a skyscraper.
0: She was an astronaut. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very Ayn Rand, so very, very Ayn Rand thing to say. Maybe that's a quote from I don't know that it is, but it sounds like something straight out of like Anthem or Atlas Shrugged. You know, like Ayn Rand was obsessed with city, obsessed with New York City, like how skyscrapers piercing the sky was much more beautiful than mountains and stuff like that. And wow, and frankly, I. Can I can see that, although I don't know I necessarily agree. A right. beautiful futuristic city. Sure. Steel more attractive than rock. You could say that. People bust my balls for like an Ayn Rand, but I I do I do love her. Pedro Escobar says, How do you feel about the way the show handled alcohol and how freely the men drank at work constantly? These men were deeply alcoholic. Deeply, deeply alcoholic, especially Roger. They needed it. Roger loved vodka, I think, and gin. I think it was vodka. He drank constantly. Yeah. And then scotch and sometimes bourbon was what was, and rye was what was Don and most of the others were drinking. They were drinking brown liquor, but they reference it sometimes. Like when Ted and Don are br- brainstorming one day, like Don gets him intentionally bombed like because he can't drink like they, and Don would say things like, you know, to Don, his secretary would be like, you know, keep me to three drinks, like stuff like that. You right, know? right, right, right. Which is amazing.
1: And you had the Freddie Rumson character, right? Yep. Who ends up a, like peeing in his pants right, and right. sort of, he comes back, but you know, there's an older guy, it's a copywriter and you know, so yeah, I think it was a, th- I think it was a thing and he, the napping during the course of the day. And yeah, you know, I loved, yeah. I love Yeah. I love I just, unbelievable. what I loved about
0: Don is you just sometimes just wouldn't show up to work. There, there was a whole arc where he like didn't show up to work for weeks. Yeah. No one had any idea where he was and then he just came back, he just rolled in. <laughs> He left Pete at the pool in California yeah. and just took off. Yeah, he went to Palm Springs and then, like, with, <laughs> with some that girl. weird family. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's a whole nother episode. That thing was so weird with the woman that he meets, but it ends up being her dad. And they were like the bohemian; they were wealthy bohemians that just bounced. Remember that yeah, whole thing? It was, it was very yeah. He strange.
0: faints in the he faints next to the pool and stuff. He has like it's a whole weird, like almost very unsettling scene. It is. It is. The final question comes from Ron Chastain who says, in regard to the popular anti-hero character type in TV shows, where do you guys rank Don Draper? He says his top five are Tony Soprano, Jax Teller, who's from Sons of Anarchy, Don cool. Draper, Walter White, and Dexter Morgan from Dexter. I like Don Draper more than Tony Soprano because I never personally aspired to or wanted to do anything. Everything about Tony Tony I didn't like. You know, and yeah. even though I liked him as an overall character and a protagonist in the show. I wasn't like I I wish I can eat five plates of pasta like Tony Soprano. I don't I wish I could beat the shit out of a murder. This dude like like Tony Soprano. Now, I don't wish that I would cheat on a woman like Don Draper or anything like that. But it's like, oh, wow, I wish I was as handsome as Don Draper. I wish I cleaned up like Don Draper. I wish I could sit back with my leg up and drink an old fashioned like Don Draper. Right. You know, I I was like Don Draper. And, you know,
1: so there's a difference. I mean, Tony, he's also not out even though he's he's a liar and he's deceptive. He's not really out to hurt anybody. Where Tony is. You know what I mean? Tony, don't get me wrong, Sopranos is one of my favorite of all time, and Tony Soprano is a great character. But there's an appeal to Don Draper that even though he does a lot of, you know, heinous things, you do want to emulate him in certain ways. That's what makes this such a mixed bag, you know, and that's what makes Mad Men great.
0: Let me ask you this before we go. Okay. It would never happen, but would you be interested in seeing a spinoff series of Mad Men?
1: I don't think so. I don't whether in it, the
0: future whether in the past concurrent
1: I don't it would be interesting to see something take place in the 70s because I'm very interested in the 70s and that was a very different time than the period that they covered in the 60s but I don't think you could do it sometimes there's just a the right place and a right time for things and you know all those components and whatever that mixes that forms that that whole alchemy to form that special magic I don't think it could be, you know, imitated. I don't think it could be redone. I think that, I think sometimes you just have to, you have to have the discipline that even though we want it back, we would love to see those characters again in those beloved situations and those beloved characters. I think you have to have the discipline to say, you know, maybe it's time for the next thing. What I'm really curious about is how Matthew Weiner is going to follow up because he's a brilliant man. You know, he's quite a wonderful writer. And I would love to see what he's going to do next. You know, even if it was half as good as Mad Men, it would be a treat.
0: Yeah, it's a tough one to follow up. What do
1: you think? Would you like to see something?
0: I don't think so. I think the only thing that would be interesting to me is a prequel that maybe was about Birch. Like I, and I've seen people mention it, like Cooper, like during the Depression. You know, that would be cool. Like, Or went the founding of the company and into the Depression and into the 30s and how they survived and stuff like that would be cool. But I don't know that's necessarily a story that needs to be told.
1: That would be cool, too, because the advertising would be much more focused on print and radio. TV is not even a component yet. Right. So from a creative standpoint, that would be very interesting because I know nothing about that. So that's cool. That that would be neat.
0: Yeah, I don't think that's a unique idea to me, but I don't know where I read that. So whoever you are out there, you came up with it first. <laughs> Well, that's it. That's our lengthy episode of Mad Men. Do you think we covered everything? Uh, well, we certainly didn't cover nearly everything, but we covered it ably enough. I think. We
1: did. We did very well. We did very well. If that's you do that's say a hard. So yourself. If, <laughs> <laughs> there's so many characters. Okay, you ready for the lightning round? Let's do it. All right, let's go. You ready? Mm-hmm. And you can keep it quick if you want to. Okay, this is good. Mad Men or Sopranos?
0: Mad Men. Pete or Ken? Pete, as a character.
1: Yeah, he's more three dimensional. Yeah. Betty or Megan? Betty. Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Straight or rocks?
0: Straight. Well, it depends on what you're drinking, but if it's just straight, you know, if it's just liquor, straight, yeah.
1: Okay. Gin or vodka? Gin. Peggy or Joan? Peggy. Very good. Very nice. Sally or Bobby? Sally. (laughs) Drive or train? Train. Lucky Strike or Hilton?
0: Hilton. We didn't even touch. We on, didn't talk about Connie Hilton. Con, Conrad Hilton is oh, like an amazing character in the so show. So good. I wonder if that's an accurate representation of him.
1: Yeah, sort of a father figure to Don.
0: Yeah, basically, like the, he seemed like a workaholic and like a dude that really got it.
1: Yeah, yeah. and eccentric as fuck. Like,
0: yeah, he fucks with Don. Don. He's one of the few people that like Don. Like can't like actually almost loses it on, and does lose it on. You know? Yeah,
1: he do really does. Yeah, fascinating character. Don Draper or Dick Whitman. Don Draper. Matthew Weiner or David Chase?
0: Matthew Weiner, because he has something to do with both of the shows.
1: There you go. That's good. Trudy or is Pete crazy?
0: I mean, both. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Well done. Okay, here's
1: a tricky one for you John Ham or Kevin Bacon?
0: <laughs> <laughs> John Ham. You're correct.
1: Contract or no contract?
0: No contract. I like. You're referencing how he he wouldn't sign his contract for yeah, years. So good. Yeah, yeah. I like the. I like that he just refused to sign. He had eventually do it, but yeah.
1: Don, would you say I know something about you? Right. That's what Bertram yeah. says when he won't talk. So good. <laughs> Nap on the couch or just go home early.
0: Both. <laughs>
1: That's correct. Too early for drinks, or never too early for drinks.
0: It can be too early for drinks. I agree with you on that one. All right, especially the friend. liquor they're drinking. Maybe you know, like I don't know that I need a because they they do it sometimes where it's like you know it's like nine thirty in the morning. It's crazy, <laughs> and they're just bo- getting bombed. <laughs> well, that was a fun episode. That was a good one. Mad Men. Remember, it was on AMC for a very long time. You can watch it. I'm sure it's available to purchase on various sh- streaming. But I think it's still on Netflix in its entirety. It is. So if you have a Netflix subscription, go check that out. It's absolutely worth you watching and and worth watching again, indeed. Uh, remember, you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand to get every episode of Knockback seven days early. And we might be integrating ads into the show soon. And if we do, the Patreon editions will be ad-free. So you can look forward to that as well. Remember, you can also subscribe for $2 a month over at Patreon and have the option to vote on topics, see the topics early, submit questions and, su- and such. Your help... On Patreon is really essential to the, to the survival of Colin's last stand. So if you do have the extra income and you like what we do and you want to consider supporting us, please do. It really does mean a lot to us. But if you don't want to support us, you can always check us out on free feeds as you are probably doing right now. And remember, if you're doing that, give us a nice review. Score us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you listen to the show. It helps us algorithmically find a new audience. And since the show is growing, why shouldn't we keep it growing even more?
1: I agree. It's like a sea monkey.
0: Do sea monkeys always grow? I don't know. Do they?
1: Yes. Our sea monkey always grows.
0: Oh, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. You're just making up zoological <laughs> facts. <laughs> You're a marine biologist. I am. Well, thank you all out there for your support, your love, for listening. We'll see you next week for more Knockback. Be good. Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan-supported over at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon. And I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Ahmed Alouez, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, Michael Betts, David Bloedel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Brand, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bouching, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhardt, Alex Cabrera, William Caldwell, Luis Cancato, Matthew Canoy, William O'Carroll, Shermer Carter, William Cashel, Brian Chand, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Steve Clifford, Dan Clifford, Chris Cochran, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Nick Cummings, Daniel Diamore, Daniel Del Nicos, Travis Depew, Mitchell Durkash, David Ellis, Albert Escobar, Brian Fink, Joe Finelli, Eric Fickenbeiner Connor Gashian Alexander Gates Michael Gates Daniel Glassford Nick Goblersh, Tyler Goodwin David S. Graham Josh Gravelick Ryan Greenwood Miranda Grubba Nick Gustafson Andres Guzman Tyler Harris Wyatt Henry Josh Yeager Clarence Johnson Paul Joyce Greg Julius, Jeremy Key Kevin Komaki Taylor C. Laudrin Jackson Lassica Donald Laws Joe Lawson Don Q. Lee Patrick Leslie Dustin Lewis Keith A. Lewis Chad Lewis Mark Liberto Lou and Ray Loper Josh M. Ryan T. Mandel John McManus Joe McPartland Albert Miranda Patrick Malloy Betty Ann Moriarty, A. Mukhtar, Brian Neitch, Connor Nesbitt, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Reed K. Parker, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Marius S. Peterson, Enrique Perez, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, Brandon Reed, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Austin Riley, Ramon Rodriguez Jr., Petro Rose, Michael Sanchez, Matthew Savoy, John Scholz, Chris Schaefer, Toby Schutman, German Sadu, Riley Smith, Jared Stuave, Alexander Suarez, Steven Summingit, Ahmad Tamar, Tam Tran, Esteban Valentin, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Casual Missits Gaming, SuperShot ST, Media, Barrick, Mubarak, DAV9834, Chris, and Donk2015.